Hello and welcome to the Project Football Podcast in association with Luke Williamson Art and the Football for Brains 21 quiz book. More on those later. Um, I just want to start this episode with a little tribute to uh, a couple of characters. I say characters because they were well-known individuals um, in the world of football, one more so off the field uh, and one on it. Uh, I'm talking about Bill Kenwright, a former man, not manager, sorry, um, chairman of Everton and Sir Bobby Charlton, uh, most well-known for his time as a player at Manchester United. Um, they both passed away recently. Um, so Bill, uh, Bill Kenwright uh, was a CBE. He uh, was born on the 4th of September 1945 uh, and sadly passed away on the 23rd of October this year. Uh, what, what I didn't realise he was um, an actor and very much involved in like TV and film and whatnot. Um he was in Coronation Street in 1968, but left the following year to pursue a role as a producer, um, but still appeared in uh, in Corrie up until 2012 um, in various little roles here and there. Uh, cameos, that's the word. Um, he was also in The Villains and The Liver Birds, and he was the chairman of Everton from 2004. Uh, he was awarded the CBE for his services to film and theatre in the 2001 New Year's Honours. Um, Everton provided a short update on Bill Kenwright's health on the 12th of October, uh, saying that following a diagnosis at the beginning of August, uh, Mr. Kenwright underwent a major medical procedure six weeks ago to remove a cancerous tumour from his liver. The procedure was completely successful, but complications during surgery necessitated a prolonged period in an intensive care unit. Everton went on then to say his recovery, which is expected to be lengthy, but complete. Uh, Kenwright then unfortunately passed away of liver cancer, as I say, on the 23rd of October this year at the age of 78. Uh, so Bobby Charlton, born on the 11th of October 1937 um, in Ashington, Northumberland, uh, sadly passed away on the 21st of October this year. Um, like I said, probably more well known for his time at Manchester United, and that was between 1956 and 1973. Uh, he went on after that to have spells at Preston, uh, Waterford in Ireland, and then in Australia, uh, Newcastle KB United, Perth Azuri, and Blacktown City. Um, his international career started in 1953 with the England schoolboys. Then he represented the England youth team. Um, that was 1953, then 1954, then 1958 to 1960. Uh, it's got him as the England under-23s but then a bit of an overlap as well. I guess he was representing both. Uh, it was the England senior team for which he played 106 times. And he's currently seventh in the all-time uh, leading cap. I don't know how you say it, cap holders. Is that right? I don't know, but he, he's seventh on that list anyway, of all-time cap recipients. Um, he managed Preston briefly between 1973 and 1975. Uh, was caretaker manager at Wigan in 1983. Um, he was one of the survivors of the Munich air disaster in 1958. Uh, played for England at tournaments in 1962 in the World Cup, uh, the 1966 and 1970 World Cups. Um, he probably didn't get the plaudits for the 66 final as much as the likes of Hurst and Peters did because obviously they got the goals, but he was given the job of marking Franz Beckenbauer, which is no easy feat by any stretch. Um, 
So yeah, that was probably just as important as the the guys who uh, who got the goals. Um, yeah, in 1970, England reached the last date when they again faced West Germany. Um, but with England 2-1 in the lead, Alf Ramsey replaced Charlton with Colin Bell. Um, Germany went on to win 3-2 after extra time and England were eliminated. And that was his 106th and last cap. Um, his brother Jack, who was two years his senior, um, with 71 caps, his junior did likewise. I'm sure that makes sense. Um, he had the record number of caps until 1973 when he was overtaken by another Bobby, another Sir, uh, Sir Bobby Moore. Um, so, yeah, he's currently seventh in the all-time England appearances behind uh, Bobby Moore, Wayne Rooney, Ashley Cole, Stephen Gerrard, David Beckham and Peter Shilton. Um, Shilton's own England career began in the first game after Bobby Charlton's ended. Uh, Charlton's goal-scoring record was surpassed by Wayne Rooney. Uh, unfortunately, on the well, unfortunately for Bobby Charlton, anyway, I'm sure he was all right with it being a, a United player that did it. Um, on the 8th of September 2015, when Rooney scored a penalty in a 2 1 win over Switzerland in a qualifying game for Euro 2016. Uh, February 2016, uh, Manchester United announced that the South Stand of Old Trafford would be renamed in honour of Sir Bobby Charlton. Uh, the unveiling took place at the home game against Everton on the 3rd of April of that year. Uh, in October 2017, uh, Charlton had a pitch named after him at St George's Park. And in November 2020, it was unfortunately revealed that Charlton had been diagnosed with dementia and as a result withdrew himself from the, the sort of, I say limelight, but you know, public life and public appearances, that sort of thing. Um, he won various things across his career, um, mostly with Manchester United, the FA Youth Cup. Uh, Division One, uh, the FA Cup, the Charity Shield, the European Cup, famously in 1968. Uh, obviously, with England, he won the World Cup in '66, uh, third place in the '68 Euros. Um, was winners of the British Home Championship in '61, uh, '65, '66, '68, and '69, uh, and then shared it in 1958, '59, '60, '64, and 1970. Uh, all sorts of individual awards. Um, Football of the Year in 1966. Uh, won the Golden Ball at the World Cup. Uh, Ballon d'Or winner in 1966 and runner-up in 67 and 68. Uh, the FIFA World Cup all-time team in 94. Football League 100 legends named in that in 1998. Named in the English Football Hall of Fame in 2002. Um, made the PFA... England League Team of the Century, uh, between, that's based between 1907 and 2007. Uh, BBC Sports Personality Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008. Uh, voted, I think he was in the top top 10 or top 20 of the FIFA Player of the Century. And he was 12th in World Soccer Magazine's The Greatest Players of the 20th Century. Um, he was named or the, the Royal Honours. Uh, Officer of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, or OBE, to me and you, uh, in 1969. Five years later, he got a CBE, uh, Knight Bachelor in 1994, and Order of the Rising Sun 4th Class in 2012. Um, but yeah, I know there's a bit more about him than uh, than Bill Kenwright, which I didn't really know 
a great deal about him, to be honest. Um, but yeah, rest in peace, Bill Kenwright and Bobby Charlton. Sorry, Sir Bobby Charlton. So before we go into the main chat um, with Kev, uh, aka the United City FM, uh, I just want to say thank you to Tyler um, from Vivas, who is my guest on episode 53. Um, go back and give that one a listen. And maybe the previous 52, if you've got the time. Um, you probably noticed that I haven't done team info on this one with Kev being a Man United fan, um, conscious that the episode is going to be long enough already. And I've covered United on multiple occasions already over the course of this podcast. Um, I don't think too much has changed since um, I've done it the last time. Maybe the manager, I don't know if Ten Hag was in charge the last time I interviewed a United fan. Um, maybe you can go back and check for us. Um, so, yeah, with that in mind, I suppose it's time for kickoff. I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the current episode of the Project Football Podcast, Kev, aka the United City FM. Kev, good morning. How are you doing, sir? Good morning. It's a good thing. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So we're both delighted and we're going to have a lovely time. It's good to see you. Well, uh, thank you very much for the welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah, you were about to say welcome to the stream, weren't you? I was going to say welcome to the podcast. It was a difficult (laughs) thing. It's a weird one, isn't it? But, you know, words are hard. I'm a streamer. Words are very hard. Exactly. (laughs) And I I spend a lot of time on the phone for my job and I still find words hard. So let's not worry about that. Yeah. So a bit of background about you then. Um, Mm -hmm. You are a football manager, streamer and podcast. Do I say co-host or just general host? I'm I'm co-host. Absolutely. Rich Owens is definitely the big dog. We we all bow to Rich. (laughs) Bit of a Roman Reigns reference there, but yeah. (laughs) Well, you Um, know. So we'll start off with the streaming side of things then, if that's all yes. right. Um, yes. How did you get into streaming FM? Well, more, more to the point, how did FM come about into your life? Um, so I, I probably have a slightly different route into some other people um, through FM and then into uh, YouTube and streaming, etc. But very, very simply, uh, I have had a disability since birth. I have spina bifida. Uh, so my mobility isn't particularly good. Uh, as a young adult, I studied through to the end of my school years, then did a couple of faffy study things that weren't really meaning much because ultimately I knew that my opportunities for work and other things were not going to be particularly strong. My my health isn't reliable for it, etc. So I didn't really go into the workplace. So from mid to late teens and then onwards, uh, and especially when I kind of then moved out of my family home into my own place in my very early 20s, I kind of had a lot of time on my hands. Um, and I just sort of just used to fill it with whatever I could find. And anybody that's played any of the championship manager or football manager games know you can put a lot of time into <laughs> oh, these yes. things. And so I did. I used it as my way just to think about something, to have something to do while I was doing other bits and pieces, whatever it was, but just to entertain myself, really, and give myself a, uh, a focus for a little while. Um, and so my love for football has always been there. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later on, exactly what that looks like specifically. But um I'm more of a manager type when I look in on sport than a playing type. I used to play wheelchair basketball 
because of my okay. disability stuff. Yeah. But I actually really enjoyed coaching that after I'd finished playing. I picked up a shoulder injury that stopped me playing. And I loved coaching it for a few uh, few years before moving on and doing some other things. So I've always had that mindset of coaching and management and tactical stuff and motivation and all those kinds of good things. So football manager or championship manager when it first uh, came out, just was right up my street and I absolutely loved it and sunk so many hours into the game. It's, it's almost slightly embarrassing, really, but not really. Um, no, and that was that FM on here. no, no, that's fair enough. So that was my kind of route into football manager uh, as a game um, and, and actually then taking it into doing something with it. Well, about when was it? About 2018, 19, uh, 2018, I was just strolling around YouTube, finding things to watch and, you know, amusing myself like I did. And I stumbled across, and it literally was a stumble. I wasn't looking for it. I stumbled across Dr. Benji oh, yeah. and a couple of his football manager videos on YouTube. And I was uh, I was blown away by him. I thought he was exceptional in what he was doing and how he was doing it. It was funny and all that kind of good stuff. But I was also just kind of slightly blown away by the fact somebody was doing it because I didn't know it was a thing. I kind of always had seen YouTube as something I go to entertain myself with something, but not something you could actually do yourself. Yeah. Um, so it kind of intrigued me. And I, in no way did I think, oh, I could do it better than Dr. Benji, because I really can't. And I don't think I'll ever <laughs> be able to. And that's fine. But I thought, well, why not give it a go? I've got the time. I've got the desire to play the game. I think I communicate really well. It's something I've always done in various contexts through my life uh, in communication of varying sorts. So I thought, well, why not? Let's just give it a go and see what happens. And it will give me a focal point to my day, something to focus on, something to do. Uh, and ultimately what it birthed was um, a thing called project and purpose for me. I use the mantra quite a lot. This is my project and my purpose doing YouTube for three and a bit years before I became a streamer, and we'll talk about the streams in a second, gave me my project to focus on, to give my energies to, to try and make something grow and work and all that kind of stuff. And it gave me my purpose, which was to actually, you know, put something out, be a part of a community, offer myself up and, and do something with the time that I have. And it also could fit in and around with whatever my health was doing on any given day, because it still is a random thing on day to day you never know so that was my route into youtube i did it for three and a half years there was an overlap of streaming of a few months but i knew that i was okay at youtube but nothing more than that my i've, I've said this before i think in other places that my youtube videos were not funny enough educational enough interesting enough exciting enough edgy enough but they were all fine and it never got me to where I wanted to really be. It never grew particularly. It was always a bit of a struggle. I had an amazing shout out from Loki Doki on one of his videos that he made about my channel saying, why is this guy not being watched more? He's good. Had a load of people come over on a given uh, weekend, which was amazing. And then just slowly watched it decline over a couple of years, just as I couldn't, I couldn't hook them. I couldn't keep them. But I always knew that actually what I would probably be better at rather than content creation is um uh, what's the, the the word that i use um i'm not a content creator i'm a community maker 
That's the phrase that I now use. And I thought that if I could get myself live on Twitch and literally just sit there for a couple of hours in an afternoon and chat to people whilst I'm playing the game, that might fit me better. It would still fulfill the same thing of giving me something to do, a project and a purpose, something other people can be part of, something to grow, put my energies in. But it might be more me because I don't think I was particularly great at the content creation. So... Unfortunately, I missed uh, the the opportunity to do that during the pandemic time when it was quite quiet and everybody was going on to Twitch and stuff because my wife started working from home and it was a bit of a conflict as to how I could do that. I had to work around her meeting schedules and other bits and pieces, so I couldn't do it then. But a little while later, she changed her job. And eventually I got the opportunity to go live on Twitch. And I was doing both for a little while, but I knew immediately that Twitch was my thing. I had yeah. found my jam and I loved it. I really, really still love it. Every weekday afternoon, I currently do it for a couple of hours. And Which it was that. Five? Yeah, 3 till 5 p.m. UK time, absolutely, over on Twitch. That's Thank you for the plug. I appreciate That's it. All right. <laughs> um, but that was my thing. I found my bag. I really, really did. I am not a content creator. I am a community maker. And I just sit and I chat and I welcome people in and I ask them about their day and I play some football manager not particularly well all the time and we just have a nice time and sort of that's where I've been for the last couple of years on Twitch now uh, and I don't see me changing it for as long as I do any form of of this type of thing this is what I will do I will be yeah. a streamer on Twitch and having a lovely time doing it I suppose uh, the difference between sort of doing Twitch as you do and doing the YouTube videos it's sort of like between a live broadcast which obviously twitch is and a pre-recorded show yeah it really is that it's it's that difference definitely uh the way that i always used to equate it was it's a bit like going to the cinema is like going to youtube you go you watch somebody's project uh, project they're not there at the time you walk away thinking and feeling what you feel about it and whatever and that's fine but they kind of hardly ever know what you think other than whether people went to watch it or not and that's about the only feedback they get whereas on twitch it's like going to the theater yeah. You're sat there in the space with the person. You immediately give them feedback through some mechanism of, you know, whether you laugh at their joke or whether you clap at the end or whatever it is uh, at the theatre. And so it feels like Twitch is like the theatre. And I'm just better with people in front of me rather than just putting out an idea or a concept or a thought that I've had or a thing that I've done and then letting other people experience it. It's just not quite the same for me. There are other people in the space doing football manager content whose videos are so much more imaginative and well edited and well thought through and more succinct and all sorts of lovely things. And I just couldn't quite get there. But I don't regret that now because it led me to where I currently am. You do what you're comfortable with. You, you find your you find yeah. your space. Yep, and, and you stick to it. Absolutely, basically, yeah. So yeah, um, so mind blank. Yeah, right. So the podcast. Oh um, yes, the podcast. Yeah. So but I welcomed you the... to at the beginning yeah. of your podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's what we do. It's weird. <laughs> kind of a quick pro quo, but anyway, <laughs> so, it's called Football Manager Therapy. Um, yes. There's four of you. Mm -hmm. more often than not yep. that get together once a week talk about football managing in general how you're doing with your particular mm -hmm. saves yeah um and obviously you're not one of the original crew sure how did you come to get involved in that 
So the, the original crew was set up by Tony Jameson and Matt Richards during the lockdown. They wanted a way to express themselves over the game that they love, but also check in with their mental health and, and make sure that they were doing okay and hopefully encourage other people to do the same during a time that was very tricky. So that was the origins of the podcast, The Football Manager Therapy. There's the therapy aspect yeah. of it. Um, and they started that in the, in the lockdown. Then Matt left and Tony stayed on. Matt was going off to do some study and other bits and pieces. And he brought Rich Owens in, friend of his. And they, they were connected through some stuff over the, the last few months. Uh, and then about six months on, Tony had an opportunity. So he had to leave. And Rich was then left with the podcast. Decided to keep it going. Decided he wanted to do something. But decided he wanted to do something slightly different. And he wanted a more of a collective to be a part of it rather than just a pairing that would be there every week. Um, so within that context, I just got a message out of the blue from uh, Tony and Rich, basically in and around the same sort of time saying, Kev, this is happening. Tony's off. I want to still do it. Would you be interested in coming on board and being a part of it? And, you know, I genuinely had to think about that because um, I may seem confident and uh communicate well and all that kind of stuff but it doesn't mean you don't have your random insecurities and stuff and i genuinely sat and thought would people want to listen to me every week talk about stuff a thing you know is, is that a voice that i have is it something i really want to do can i commit to it and all that kind of stuff because it's a commitment you have to be there as much as you can be oh, yeah. um and ultimately I decided that it was something i was intrigued by never really thought of doing before and the opportunity was there so i thought well why not uh, and at the same time, he had the same conversation, type of conversation with uh, Jebaru, a guy called James Jebaru, uh, and Alice, who is FM Girl. Now, Alice came on for a little while, decided that it wasn't quite what they were looking for, really, at that point, um, and decided they wanted to focus and concentrate on their own thing. So they then subsequently left a couple of months into it. And eventually we brought Y Callum in, Callum, lovely guy, um, the sunshine kid, we call him. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's just such a, 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 a fantastic human being. Uh, and he, he became smiling, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't really. Uh, and he became the fourth member of our current collective. So it's Rich, who is the main host of it. He's the guy behind it, really. And then myself, Jebaru and, and Callum are, are sort of his co-hosts and cohorts in it. And we have a lovely time doing it. Yeah. I know. I mean, I'm a big fan of it myself um mm -hmm. and Thank i've noticed know. there's been a few where you haven't quite got the full collective together but mm -hmm. the flow of it hasn't you know hasn't suffered because i think you all interrupt with each other like brilliant brilliantly if I can yeah yeah it's it, no it, it, that that was the main thing really that that thing of rich was very clear at the beginning to say i'm not expecting you all to be here every week I'd love it if you were, and however many you want to do is absolutely fine. Come and do them, but there is not the expectation to be here every week because even he can't do that as the host of it. You know, there are times where Jebaru oh, yeah. is hosted because Rich has got things to happen. Life happens, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it can do in that sense. Um, so it was important to get four of us together that could rotate in and out, and whichever combination we've had 
we've had shows where we've had two of us on we've had shows where yeah. we've had four of us on three of us as well and it just works because we know kind of what our placement is in that sense you know we, we know what we're there to do and how it all works and uh it's a really great balance it, it's one of the most important things about putting a podcast together with a bunch of people is just getting the right personalities and the right skill sets what you don't see behind the scenes for example is that you know rich may be the host but i would i don't think he'd mind me saying he's not the most organized person in the world and he needs a couple <laughs> of people to just chivy him a little bit and make sure we know where we're going and what we're doing and kind of we fulfill that role a little bit jebaru is the most tech-minded person that I know. He knows how to set these things up and how to make it look and sound better and how to, you know, sort a few things out in the background. And and I don't. And I was very honest to say, look, I'll chivy, I'll ask a few questions behind the scenes, I'll be part of the process. But what I really offer is that I'm a personality on a camera. That's what I offer. I don't want to be the lead person of the podcast. I just want to be a voice within it and give my opinion here and there and enjoy the process of it. And so we, we kind of just know where we fit, really. And it, it's worked really well. We've been doing it for just under a year. It's coming up under uh, just uh, the first year of this particular iteration under Rich. Obviously, Callum joined a little bit later than that. But it's gone really well. And it's it's getting better all the time, I think, which is great. That's the thing, I suppose, with any sort of, I guess it's got media creation or mm -hmm. content creation, if you prefer. There's always, you, you think of something somewhere down the line, it's like, actually, if we try this, yeah. it might work, it might not. You know, yeah. But if you don't try it, you don't know, do you? No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad. I'm really glad that I did because I could have quite happily said, no, I'll just focus on my own stuff and, and do my stream and all that kind of. I really could have. It would have been easy to do that in that sense. But uh, I'd already been uh, a part of the uh, a, a group called the FM Playoffs, which is a drafting competition within the FM community, which I love to pieces as well. I'm part of their panel covering their events. Like so the, I'd always the PVP. Yes, the, per, yeah. the player versus player stuff. So you you basically, you get eight people together, you go and draft a team, you give them a budget and they have to go and pick their players within their budget and then you put the teams uh, in a competition together and there's one person standing at the end of it and they begin, become the winner of your draft. But we've made it into kind of TV and someone like Tony, who we mentioned from the podcast, he hosts the show or Jebaru will host the show and he has a, a panel of people on there talking about the games that they're watching and the streamers are all live playing it at the same time and it's a whole hub of people you know playing and doing the same thing and and it's like soccer saturday basically i was gonna say it's almost like soccer saturday meets it is FM. it's kind of that really uh, that, the, stream, the streamer Shaw showdown <laughs> the streamer showdown yeah. which was run by dr benji and stuff is the biggest one that's ever been in the space that's been on hiatus a little bit and the playoffs kind of tried to fill a little bit of a gap and be there and and, and run as well as we could and the last 18 months have been very good so i'd already already done a bit of that so shout out to those guys guys as well. Uh, so moving into the podcast uh, wasn't totally an alien concept to work with some of these people, but it was just, do I want to do a podcast and be available on that weekly basis, et cetera, yeah. to do it and decided I would. And it's been great. And so with the uh, the PVP side of things, you've you've done all right with those, haven't you? I've done, yeah. I mean, I've played in a few here and there. I, it hasn't always been successful. I would say there are far more successful people out there than me. But um, currently, I've won a couple of competitions, had a great time doing it. I'm currently uh, the reigning, defending, undisputed uh, football manager, world heavyweight champion in an organisation that Michael runs in our um, in our community, having won his title belt because he runs it like a wrestling federation, basically. So as we speak 
week I'm the current champion of that. Um, so we'll see what happens in FM24 as to how that works. Um, so yeah, you know, there's lots of there's loads of these competitions out there. Some are, are basically community-based ones where anybody can join. Some are ranked competitions. There's a ranking system out there for prop, you know, streamers to do to participate and stream it and and pick up ranking points and everything in between. It's it's a great place to be a part of. It's a lot of fun. I'd say ultimately that's what it is, isn't it? A bit of fun. I mean, I've seen some of the ones that have cropped up on, like when they've posted the stipulations on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's like you've got one and a half million pounds to buy a 20 man squad, but you're only allowed mm-hmm. under 19s from Central Africa or something <laughs> random like that. You know? That's the thing. When you enter the actual competition before it even begins, you don't know what stipulations the owners yeah. of that competition are going to use. And sometimes they're really lovely and they say worldwide player pool and unlimited budget. And you go, yes, please let's go and have a go and see what happens. And sometimes it is that it's, you know, uh, Africans who are 19 who can only kick with their left foot and are half blind in left eye and you've got £2.50 to spend. and you, 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 It could be anything. It could be a jumping reach of three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just never know what it's going to be. It's fun. It's, it's, it's a mad, mad lot of fun. Yeah, so I've, I've watched a few of the videos where they've actually had the draft and it's like mm-hmm. the, the way people are like, oh, no, he's had that player. It's like they've got to <laughs> literally redo the whole squad that they've got to pick. Yep. Because someone's picked one particular player. That's it. You've got to prepare for these things. When I go into a draft, I've got a short list of probably anywhere up to about 60 to 80 players for my 20-man squad. Uh, and probably sometimes even more that. Because you know at some point the key left fullback that you really want, because he's also great at free kicks or whatever it might be, somebody's going to take him in two rounds before you get to him, thinking that yeah. it's more important to him than it is to you or whatever it might be. So you've just got to be able to roll with the punches. And some people can do that really well and others struggle with it. But there is a little bit of pressure, especially when you're streaming it as well. And you've got a chat going in the background going, you should pick this, you should pick that. You, should, you know, you've got to be able to stick to kind of what you want to do a bit but it's fun it's a lot of fun and actually the most fun i have is on the football manager playoffs competition when i become part of the panel and i sit there and i commentate on games and i shout goal occasionally and they cut to me <laughs> and i get to talk to them about the goal that's just happened on my game that i'm watching it's i love it it's such a great show such a good bunch of people and it's yeah a lot less pressure than playing in it i tell you oh definitely Let's say you got the likes of, I mean, the names I can think of at the top of my head, like Cy Maggio, um, mm-hmm. Steak yep. Bake, and yep. uh, I can't remember his name, but it was the lad from Birmingham as well, isn't there? Oh, there's there's tons out there. I wouldn't yeah. want to get the wrong people at the wrong time. No, I mean, but... we've got FM Llama is one from the Birmingham mm. area. Um, we've got Murph, who's Murph, in and around Murph FM, who's in and around yeah. that. But yeah, there's there's lots of good people doing it. Um, and what we've seen over the last couple of years, of course, is that there's a, a, a new breed of people coming through into the content creation um, streaming kind of scene uh, that are, you know, incredibly competitive as well. It's become much more competitive than it used to be in terms of particip- uh, participating in these things, but fun nonetheless. And and the bit that the people don't necessarily see as much from listening in or watching in is that behind the scenes, we're all in things like discord calls having a great conversation with each other whilst we're doing it and so there's a huge collective of meeting up with other people and what becomes quite a solo activity ultimately of playing a video game in your living room or whatever it is becomes quite a collective in the end which is lovely and that comes back to that word you mentioned earlier community 
Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a full circle thing. Yeah. You say about competitiveness, and this is relating to a, a, another FM playing Kev. Obviously, mm -hmm. um, Le Yep. I know he was on the show recently. He broke the world record, didn't he? For he did playing. I, I can't remember what the exact title of it was, but he set so a world he, record either way. He did. He ba he basically played the longest game consecutive game of football manager. He yeah. basically went for about 52 hours or whatever it was. I can't remember the exact time, but it was 51, 52 hours. He was allowed little breaks here and there through the time, but he was basically on a show floor for a convention. And so he was live 24-7 through that sort of 50-hour period and played his Tottenham save throughout and, and yeah, set a brand new world record for it. So, you know, kudos to him. There's there's lots of conversation on my stream uh, every other day about when am I going to do my 24-hour live stream? And my answer is never, ever, ever, never, <laughs> ever, never, ever, never. Uh, so that's so a maybe 50, then, yeah? <laughs> So that's a maybe, yeah. But 50-odd hours, I can't even contemplate nah. it. <laughs> I so say you, you probably struggle to put that into a game in a month, let alone in one yeah, stretch. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on to the, uh, the real life football now. Okay. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, um, could be. <laughs> I, I didn't mention this earlier, but you are a Manchester United fan. Oh, actually, before we do yes. move on. Yes. The United City FM name. How did that come about? So it was me in uh, in one moment being incredibly clever and incredibly stupid all at the same time. So I was trying to figure out a name. I know, bear with me, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. But I was trying to figure out a name for my YouTube channel originally. And I thought, okay, what, what do I really, really know? What I know is that on YouTube, loads of people are going to be searching for the likes of Man United and loads of people are going to be searching for the likes of Man City and stuff. They're big deals in the world of football, especially in English football, etc. So what if I combine a little bit of the name of the both? And then when people search for it, I'll come up in the searches. It's a really smart idea, sort of but really dumb because, of course, what happens is that they all sort search for those names and then you don't come up at all because there's so many things ahead of you in the pecking order that they get to first and they never find you from it. So the idea was kind of a good one, sort of, but really stupid because it doesn't work. <laughs> but it was not right the way from word go. It was not the only reason that I chose it. There was another reason. And the, uh, the other reason is sort of twofold. And it was the sort of thought that, I want to forget the connotations of the Manchester clubs. I wanted to, to create a united city on the internet, a united community, a group of people okay. that could come together under the banner of football manager as a thing, be com uh, connected and united by that rather than anything else, uh, and become a united city. Uh, so that was the, the first aspect. The, the second half of that was ultimately... Um, when you talk about um, being a United City, I wanted it to be that if you're a City fan and you know that I'm a United fan or you're a Leeds fan or a you know Liverpool fan or an Exeter fan or a West Brom fan or whatever, I didn't <laughs> care about any of that. I don't yeah. care who you support because we collect behind FM, not the IRL football teams. I very much live by the mantra of I support my own team and I don't oppose anybody else's. And that's just the way that my head works. And it was just a demonstration of I don't care if you're a City fan. I'm a United fan. Always have been from seven years old and I always will be. But I don't care what you are. I just care that you're a nice person 
in a good community of people wanting to communicate well about football and football manager and other bits and pieces. So it was an opportunity to try and express that as well. So there's kind of uh, lots of different reasons for it. Some were really stupid and actually some worked out pretty well. Yeah. Well, I say, again, it goes back to that other C word, community. Yeah, it really um, does. It really, really does. All, all goes back to that. So, right. Now we'll move on to the real life football. <laughs> yes. So you touched on it briefly that say you've supported Man United since you were seven, but yes. how did that come about that you know United was the team for you? So I mean um, United are the team to, for me because I grew up in Brentford, so it's only natural, right? That's just the <laughs> way course. it works of the world. Yeah. So the, the the simple reality is I grew up in a family that kind of had a bit of football in it. I think, you know, my brother was a Tottenham fan or whatever just because he wanted to be you know whatever but my none of my my parents weren't that bothered by football we didn't ever go to the Brentford stadium particularly there was one family friend that might have taken us once or twice when I was growing up so I didn't have a particular connection to them yeah. and I was at the age of seven myself and my friend Ben I remember it was still very vividly we're just talking about who do we support you know and, and what does that look like and we both kind of didn't really know who we were supposed to or what that looked like and it was just literally just about to come up the 1983 FA Cup final. So there you go. That ages me. I am that old. It's fine. <laughs> um, uh, and so we decided in our seven-year-old infinite wisdom that whoever won the 1983 FA Cup final, we were going to support because we didn't know how else to do it. And it was a final between Brighton and Manchester United. And eventually it went to a replay because there was a draw in the first game. It went to a replay and Man United won it. So I became became a Man United fan okay. and that was you know 40 years ago and I really genuinely couldn't change now even if people wanted me and some people too you know that's fine but that's how it came to be the weird thing is I don't actually live that far from Brighton uh now right. I didn't at the time I was up in Brentford and we've moved around the country a little bit I haven't got anywhere near Manchester at all but I've been <laughs> you know down in the south of England most of my life in various places now don't live too far along the coast from Brighton um, and I've always been a Man United fan ever since. And it was in the days of Ron Atkinson. You know, he won that FA Cup final, but then finished sort of mid to lower part of the table for the next two or three seasons before he got the boot because he was doing that. And Fergie came in and then, it, you know, five years after he came in, it sort of snowballed into what it became. And I got swept up in that, really. But I was there before the success, if that makes sense. Although the success of an FA Cup final kind of drew me in. So it's a bit of a contradiction, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. The before um, it was so yeah. the, the red juggernaut that we know. Exactly. Absolutely. So that was, that was the route in. Uh, I know it's a weird route in a lot of ways. Uh, and I know that some people will connect to that and other people will think that's ma a madness and ridiculous, whatever. That's absolutely fine. But it's just kind of my route. And to be totally honest with you, the other point I'd like to make on it really is that because of my disability issues that are quite prevalent, I wouldn't have been going to the football quite regularly anyway. It's kind of yeah. hard for me to get out and do some of these things in that kind of context here and there. So I'm more of an armchair football fan anyway. I watch most football that I can get my hands on if I can at most levels. Um, it just happens that I, I have a connection to the fandom of Man United above anything else. But I'm, I'm a football fan more than anything else. No, to be fair, the, the reasoning beyond that, I, I like that. It's not just, mm -hmm. you know, because normally it's sort of like, oh, my dad took me, my uncle took me, I went with my best mate. But, sure. you know, it's like whoever wins this game, 
Yeah. This is who we pick, and that eighty-three we were seven. could have been exactly. <laughs> that could have been. It could have been anybody, really, couldn't it? Yeah, it really. But it just happened to be yeah. a team that went on to be, without understanding, immensely successful in the just years a little to come. Bit. Just yeah. a little bit, and then not so much. <laughs> yeah, which we'll, we'll we'll touch on that. Um, yeah, fair. So that's your sort of past um, yep. with United out of the way. Now the present. Yes, which is obviously probably less of a uh, a thrill to talk about, but we're going to do it anyway. That's yeah, why yeah, you're here. absolutely, um, no problem with that. So, where do you see Ten Hag being at the end of the season? Do you see him staying or? Well, okay, so that the, the the situation at Man United is an incredibly complicated one at the moment, uh, and I have been uh, occasionally roundly criticised for a stance. Uh, uh, and other times supported for it. But my stance is basically, if it were me looking in on the club, I genuinely, at the moment, don't see any issue that we are having as Ten Hag's fault. Genuinely. I think he's a good coach. He's got a good philosophy of football. He's a disciplinarian. He's structured. He knows what he wants. But he's in a club that is very poorly run, very poorly disciplined and very poorly structured from the top right the way down to the bottom. And for me personally, personal opinion, the only thing that will ever change where we currently find ourselves is a change in ownership. Because I think it is run by people that don't get the football club and the philosophy of the football club and how it's supposed to be. And they're all in it just for themselves. And that's the world of football. I get it in a lot of ways. I'm not naive enough to think that next week we're going to get fan ownership and it'll be a hundred percent fan ownership and we'll all have a lovely time. I get it. It's not going to happen that way. And at the moment we're currently going through that situation of uh, the Sheikh Jassim deal is off the table, which is fine with me. I wasn't overly connected to that. I feel like the ethical nature of some of that was hard to get yeah. behind in uh, in a bit as well. But we're left with the thought that Jim Radcliffe is going to come in for 25% of the club and be a part owner of it. And he's going to take the footballing side and they're still going to have the business side. And will they be able to manage that together? And will Jim eventually come and take over the club completely and financially buy them out? And nobody knows any of those things. So again, what it feels like after the last 18 years of the Glazer ownership, which has been the problem to me, is that we are still in a position where the club is in complete disarray and doesn't know who it is or what it is or where it's going or why it's doing it. And I fear that that's going to still continue in a lot of ways. So to answer your question in a very, very long rambly roundabout (laughs) kind of way, if it were me, I would have Ten Hag in charge at the end of the season going into next season saying, okay, this is our manager for the next five years. We've got disarray around him. Can he be the structure on the footballing side of things that helps us to get where we need to be and be a part of that? Because I think changing again won't achieve anything other than just completely unsettle the playing side and the footballing side again because you bring a new person in with different ideals and different philosophies in a club that's already in total disarray. And I don't use that lightly. I genuinely think it's a club in total disarray. The fact that you've had an ownership that never put their own money in in the first place to buy it, put debt on the club that's uh, crippling the club in a lot of ways and not enabling the club to actually sustain itself in the way that it absolutely could do. But then on top of that, 
And we have to be incredibly careful how we deal with these sorts of things. You've had the player issues of like the likes of Marcus, uh, not Marcus Rashford, sorry, Mason Greenwood. And you've yeah. had uh, Anthony and you've had the Jaden Sancho falling out with Ten Hag and other bits and pieces. It's a club in disarray. It's not run well. The scouting and uh, recruitment structures within the club are awful. We've made one bit of profit in the last decade on any player we've bought in, and that was selling Dan James. We have not made profit on any player in the last decade by moving them out from the club. And last summer, the reason why... I will stop talking in a minute. It's fine. But, <laughs> it's uh, right. the, I get on a soapbox a little bit about it. But the, the reason why I don't think it's Ten Hag's fault is I genuinely think if you were asking Ten Hag before last summer's transfer window, what is your expectation? The expectation from him would have been that Maguire would have left, that Fred would have left, that Van de Beek would have left, that Martial would have left, that maybe McTominay would have left, etc., etc. He had a list of people that he wanted out of the club so he could reshape it. Now, a couple of them have. The likes of Fred have moved on. But Maguire is still there. Van de Beek is still there. McTominay, to a lesser extent, is still there. Martial is still there. And not to getting those players off our wage structure as well as bringing in a transfer budget from them meant we couldn't then go and refresh in the way that Ten Hag would have genuinely thought he was going to be able to. Not that he wanted to, but he was going to be able to. They were going to get these players out of our club for the first time in five years of trying to do that. And we didn't. We couldn't do it. We couldn't get these players out. There weren't deals on the table to pay bits of them off to go and get a lower wage somewhere else to move them on to, you know, restructure. And it's our recruitment side of the club is not run well because the ownership is not run well and they're not putting the best in sort of uh, the top guys in those particular departments. We're not best in class in anything. And we used to be. And the stadium's yeah. done done in and the training complex is done in and everything's leaking and the roof is leaking, all that kind of stuff. We are absolutely a club in disarray. And the criticism I get, the criticism I've had is, yes, but Kev, you're a Man United fan watching billionaires play football. Is it really that bad? And I get it. It's not like we're going under. It's not like we've got a, um, an owner that's going to absolutely destroy our club and take us to the wire and then lose the club through it. There are many clubs in worse positions than we are in a lot of ways, but I'm not a fan of them. I'm a fan of Man United. And so I care about them for any way. And I know that it's difficult to care about them when potentially the alternative was we might become state-owned or sports-washed and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to get your head around and figure out, do I still want to be a fan of that? And all that kind of question. But ultimately, I'm a fan of the institution and I want it to be as good as it can be. I understand that as good as it can be is dealing with billionaires doing billionaire things and making it an amazing football club because it has been. And we are not that yet. Again, we are not that now, should I say. I was going to say, if you're you're in a position where the Glazers have gone altogether, Mm -hmm. do you think that you would uh, see like kind of the glory days that Fergie brought in again? Or... what what I think we would see uh, is a couple of things. Depending on who is then in control of the club, you would hope that within the structure of Manchester United, it's a big enough institution to be able to go and identify 
the absolute best in class for their recruitment teams, uh, their scouting networks, their physio department, their science department, that you know, all those kind of their sports science department, all those kinds of things that I don't think we're top of class at, at the moment. And I think if somebody else were to come in and run it who knows a little bit about how to set these things up, that's the thing that you would first see that might have then a trickle effect down the rest of the club. Um, I think the, the other thing that you would see if the Glazers are not there and somebody had swept them away is that the financial aspect of the club is twofold, is a bad way in two ways. And the first way is there is a debt on the club that the club is paying back that the Glazers used to buy the club in the first place, which ultimately means that you are putting money into something that's giving you nothing back because the ownership found that they could do it. And that's the only thing that the, the, the debt is there for. They bought the club, they leveraged it, and then they put the debt on the club to pay back. So they're not paying it back. So the club is paying out money. So that reduces the finance in the club because it's paying out. Second reason, you take the Glazers away. They've taken a billion and a half pounds out of the club in the last 15 years through dividends that they've uh, been able to take out the club and line their own pocket with. So they've They've put the debt on the club, so the club is paying that, and they've taken a billion and a half pounds out to line their own pockets from the club. If you take both of those things away, this club does not need a uh, Saudi or Qatari owner who's got billions of pounds. It doesn't need to be state-owned. It doesn't need the ethical issues. It needs those two things reset and then the club itself can sustain itself and buy whatever it wants to buy and do whatever it wants to do within the context of they've earned the money in through their own marketing schemes and other bits and pieces and the historical nature of the club that they're at. They are one of the biggest clubs in the world and they could sustain themselves and compete with the very, very best in the world just by clearing that out. And that's the biggest issue at the moment in the club. It's not Ten Hag. It's the it's those issues that mean the club is not running to its potential. And if you get rid of that, you change it. And then at least we've got no excuses not to then go and, you know, compete again. Yeah. And at the moment, we can't. I was going to say, if, if you take, excuse me, that financial aspect of it that you just like, you know, you're saying even that billion and a half that the, the Glazers mm -hmm. have took out. Yeah. If you put that as like transfer money um, sure. over those few years, you're talking almost Man City levels of spending then, aren't you? You, and, are. you know, Look what they're achieving. But the, the really important point to make about that is I am not saying that Man United haven't spent that sort of money on the transfer market. They have, but they've done it really badly. And the people in their recruitment and scouting departments have done it really badly. And we've given huge contracts to average players that we now can't get out of the club because nobody else will match what we're paying them and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just about the transfer money. The transfer money would be lovely. But if you put that billion and a half pounds into the club and you improve the training complex and make it absolute state of the art which it currently is not and you change the stadium to be state of the art which is not and you make it more of a draw for people to come and want to play there because it's not old and decrepit and falling apart and you put some money into all the different departments of the club to improve the quality of them go and find the best people in those categories and then also put a bit into the transfer market as well 
then you have a different club. And that's the thing. It's not about spending money on transfers. It's about spending money on the club and then doing that because you've got better people to do it. I suppose that, you know, so if you've got the better I don't know, youth recruitment or, you know, whatever, you, mm-hmm. you get better youth players in who then become better senior yep. players. Yeah. And and then maybe move on, like I say, for a profit, which you haven't done for a, a long time. Absolutely. And so, I mean, the, the youth thing is a, a very key thing. So if you look in and around Manchester uh, and you go, OK, there's a real great prospect playing for his secondary school or whatever football team in some uh, uh, school in Manchester. And both City and United show up to scout this player and have a look at him and then say, do you want to come and be part of our academy? And Manchester City's academy doesn't matter about the history of the club and it doesn't matter what's happening currently on the pitch IRL with the big teams. If their academy is state-of-the-art and feels fresh and technology is everywhere and you know that you're connecting to the youth of today to say, this is how we're going to do this and this is what it uh, how it works and stuff. And then you go to United's and it's just not that. It's not bad. It's not, you know, it's not like they're they're working in the 60s or something. It's still up to date sort of, but it's not cutting edge and it's not fresh and newly built and, and you know, structured. Which are you going to choose? You're going to choose the thing that you think is most up to date and most connected to where we're currently heading in the current terms of technology and other bits and pieces. And that's going to be City over United in that set, just in that little kind of context. So it's those things that we need to improve. We have fallen far behind to those sort of big clubs around us in those sorts of areas. Yeah, so as in that, it's sort of like offering someone a PS5 or a PS4. Yeah, the PS4 is good. Sure. Yep. And it's not a nice, shiny PS5. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and we are not the PS5 at the moment. No. I'd say you're probably we, but we, But PS3 we could maybe. be. <laughs> we could be if we clear out the debt and, and taking out of money from the Glazers. That would be yeah, the thing. So get rid of them. Get rid of some of the deadwood on the pitch. Yep. And uh, goalkeeper situation. I've got to bring that up. I've been <laughs> goal a lot myself. Um, you've just let De Gea go on a free. Yes. And now Onana comes in. It's and a strange he's not one, isn't really it? covered himself in glory, it's fair to say. It's, it's weird, isn't it? Because um, so De Gea started really weakly at United in yeah. the first couple of seasons. He was fragile. He wasn't yep. strong enough physically, couldn't come and claim anything. It was a good shot stopper, even there. We knew that, mm. you know, but didn't really get the other side of the game. Then he developed. And let's be totally truthful about De Gea. Over the last decade of him being at the club, he's been the player of the season like three or four times because he's had to be because they've been yeah. so dreadful in front of him. And he's been excellent in a lot of ways. But when you get a new manager in, and we saw it with Pep at Man City, he came in with his goalkeeping situation with Joe Hart. And then he brought in Claudio Bravo. And he looked at both of those guys and went, nope, it's not good enough. I want to go and spend 50 million on that guy because he can do exactly what I want him to do. Now, Ten Hag looked at De Gea, who'd been there for a, you know over a decade, whatever it was. So he'd been, been there a while, yeah. A, yeah, he'd been he's been there for a long time, and and he's a good goalkeeper, great shot stopper, uh, saved us in a lot of ways. Was player of the season a few times, but was prone to an error or two. Was and was also not particularly good with his feet necessarily in terms of distributing the ball, etc. And Ten Hag came in and said, my philosophy doesn't matter how long you've served this club and doesn't matter how good you are in X, Y, and Z. I need you to be good in this. 
And one of the reasons that he got rid of him was distribution of the ball. And he needed a better distributor to work on his style of play and also maybe eliminate a couple of mistakes. Now, that as aspect hasn't changed. We no. brought Anana in. Anana, remember, has not looked great. There is absolutely no disputing that. I've been disappointed with him in a lot of ways. But he did reach the Champions League final fairly recently with Inter Milan. This is not a bad goalkeeper in general. He's having a bad moment at United and we will find out over time whether he can find his way through that and become more um, consistent. But what Ten Hag has got from him... And the way that I know he has is because it absolutely scared me to death when I was watching the preseason friendlies. He's got a goalkeeper who is incredibly comfortable on the ball and you can use him as a sweeper keeper. And he comes out of his box and becomes part of a back line and passes the ball around. And you think, if we get caught out here, we are going to be in so much trouble. Yeah. And most of the time, he can find his target and do pretty well because he's got a great pass on him. Really great pass. But then occasionally he drops a clangor in that aspect of the game because he's playing on the edge of what you're supposed to be doing at times and occasionally gets it wrong. And we, uh, because he's a goalkeeper in that sense, you then pay for it. And the other thing is, for whatever reason, he's not been particularly solid just in his normal goalkeeping duties as you would express you know the shot stopping the claiming of the ball the commanding of an area making your defense feel secure with you behind them all that kind of stuff the basics and we were all and the basics yeah and we were already a little bit shaky in those in the first place because the people in front of him haven't really demonstrated consistency for the last decade anyway so it's it's a bit of a, a melting pot of madness at the moment uh i think at the moment you would say if I if he's not there at the beginning of next season, you wouldn't necessarily be surprised. It wouldn't no. shock you that if he wasn't there. But there's nothing to say at the moment that he can't turn this around, that he can't be told by Ten Hag, actually, if you if you can stop doing that, which will lead to this, then that's going to make you better. And if you listen to our goalkeeping coaches and if you work on that aspect of your game and just focus a little bit more there rather than here, you are a good enough goalkeeper. He's got the physical attributes to do it. He's got the personality type to do it. He's been successful in other places. So in theory, he can do it. It doesn't necessarily mean he'll do it at United, but I kind of hope he does because at least he's brave enough to come out a couple of weeks ago and actually say to the press, literally, that was my worst game ever. I don't know why it was so bad. I don't want it to happen again. I'm going to be working really hard to try and change that. And off we go. I like that. I think that's commendable. Yeah, can sure, he do it? Honest. We will find. We will find yeah, out but... over time whether he can actually change it. But at the moment, it's uh, a bit mad. Yeah, I suppose a goalkeeper as well. It's like the mistakes they make because of the position they play. Yep. Are highlighted even more so. Yeah, say you sense a mid, say, you know, McTominay, for example, a mm -hmm. couple of stray passes here and there. It's like, oh, you missed a pass. Never mind. You still make another 25, 30 successful passes, sure. for example. Yeah. You know, Anana drops one ricket that leads to a goal and he's and just, yep. you know, the and, spotlight and what, is firmly on him. What you then find with Man United at the moment, because of where they are in the, in the pecking order of stuff and how they've been playing over the last X amount of years, is that if Onana drops a clanger and we lose a goal, the entirety of the team drop 
because they're not strong enough mentally at the moment to go, right, we're going to fight our way out of this. They kind of go, it's happening again. Oh dear, yeah. here we go. And that's the mentality of it. You know, you see players drop and, and at the moment we're not being dragged through by anybody particularly enough. And when Onana does stuff that's a bit out there and we lose a goal, it puts us under so much pressure that the rest of the team then crumble because they're not in a, a strong enough mental place at the moment to deal with that seemingly. That's just a perspective of mine. Might not be true necessarily, but it's how I perceive it to be. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's a problem. I think we will see our other goalkeeping signing from the summer by India have a go at some point and just give him a couple of games in cup competitions to see if he's more... Uh, sort of calm and, and yeah. structured, um, but I want I want Onana to succeed because I think if you can get him to a point where his basic goalkeeping attributes are actually being worked on very well and he's performing in that, what you get, he's so good on the ball. I, I genuinely can't tell you enough how uncomfortable it made me watching him in pre-season friends because I've never seen a goalkeeper do it at United <laughs> like that. I'm so used to it going back and then just tapping it out and he was coming out and getting involved and taking people on and, and you're going what but most of the time it was working like an old school rush keeper yeah absolutely yeah. So, so yeah do you think that you're sort of missing a, a leader as such on the pitch um yeah like you had your, your Roy Keynes your Brian Robson's Sure. Back in, I, know, I don't know. I don't combined. know whether they totally exist in the same way anymore. I think that's maybe a generational thing that might have passed us by a little bit. I think there's one or two around there, but I'm not sure it's prevalent as much. Um, what you would say, looking in on the United team at the moment, if you just roughly go to our first team, you've got someone like Varane who's won it all pretty much. Yeah. So you'd expect him to lead by example, if nothing else. You've got somebody, <laughs> when he's not injured, of course, when you've got someone like Casemiro, who's won it all, has got the age and experience, you would expect him to lead by example. You've got somebody like uh, Martinez, who's like a bull in a china shop, <laughs> but knows what he wants and what he wants is to win. And you would expect him to drag people towards that in a way that he can. You've got somebody like Bruno Fernandes, who... Uh, I, it's a bit of a dual personality for me. On one hand, I genuinely think in the last decade, he's been our best player, our best purchase. He's been exceptional at times. He's now the captain of the club since they took it away from Maguire. And the only problem that I personally have with that, and it's all purely about my own personality type and what I like and what I don't like, He's too whiny and whingy. He doesn't lead by example. He doesn't go, I'm going to make my football do the talking. He goes, I'm going to go and have a good old whinge up to the ref and wave my arms around and look frustrated. And I don't like it in my leader. I want Roy Keane, who's going yeah. to show you that we are going to win because we are just going to. And you go, yes, Roy. Okay, off we go. And they aren't around in the same way. We've got lots of very good her top quality professional players that won lots of stuff but collectively there's no main way in which we're all heading off into because the minute somebody scratches the surface of it and we let in a silly goal or whatever everybody goes don't know what, what, is it because they're just maybe a bit too nice I don't know or if it's nice. Or... I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't claim that Martinez, Fernandez, no, Casemiro yeah. <laughs> are nice necessarily, but I don't know what it is. I think uh, there there is something to say in that it's an unbalanced squad in terms of how good they actually are. 
We've got some very good players. I mean, you mentioned Varane. Varane is a case in point. Varane is an exceptional central defender, but he's also exceptional about being injured every so often yeah. and not being in the team consistently. And when you look back on Man United and you get like the Bruce Pallister partnership in the 90s, the 80s, 90s, whatever it was, you then get uh, people like Yapstam and Ronnie Johnson for a while. You then get Vidic and Ferdinand. Yeah. You know, They're partnerships that sustain each other complement each other and are always there and you need that as a basis for your defense and we don't have it because Varane's injury prone um and you know it, it's just in and out a little bit and, and the people around that aren't good enough you know Maguire I genuinely feel sorry for the lad in a lot of ways I think if he were to move clubs to a team that play his style of football, which is not to be on a high line and use pace to get back at, and you know, other bits and pieces that United do a little bit that maybe don't quite fit him, he could go somewhere else and be brilliant. He really, really can. He's not a bad defender. We bought him for 80 million for a reason. He was great at Leicester uh, and he's been good for England as well a lot of the time. He's just at the wrong club in the wrong way at the wrong moment now and needs to move on. But he's the replacement and you put him in and again, Onana makes a mistake and then everybody just drops. And, it, it you know, it's just there somewhere. We're, we're just not a, a good enough squad um in terms of leadership in terms of dragging people through but also in skill levels through the different positions and the different um tasks that you're asking them to do we're not good enough so january's only around the corner see what happens indeed well i mean we'll sort the ownership thing out first and see whether that changes anything you know the, the one thing i would say about potentially sir jim radcliffe coming in and being a 25 percent owner of the club and taking over the football side of things because that is the suggestion that he will do that and the glazers will take the business side of things if that happens and he brings in a couple of very key players people like paul mitchell have been talked about in terms of scouting departments and recruitment and other bits and a new uh you know director of football and other bits if we if we do some of that it's beginning to do what i said earlier which is change some of those structures and those yeah. uh you know those departments and maybe that's where we can start to improve and identify what i really want man united to do is i want man united to do what brighton are doing and that is saying right okay we need a central midfielder Let's not try and go and get Jude Bellingham because we know he's going to Real Madrid. Let's go and get that random 19-year-old in some far-flung country that nobody else has spotted that we know if we bring him in, he's got the attributes to do the job we are asking of him and go and find that guy. That's what we need to be doing. And we're not. We're going for the the sort of the big name um Lots of multi-million person fo uh, following social media type personality. Like that the can, marquee signing. The marquee kind of yeah. signing. We don't need them. We need somebody that's going to fit the philosophy. So that's what we need to do. Yeah, I, I found that when um, Dan Ashworth left West Brom. Mm -hmm. yep. um, he was bringing in players like, I mean, none of us had ever heard of, you know, Claudio Jacob, uh, mm -hmm. Yusuf yep. Balumbu. But that partnership in midfield, it was like, yeah, good luck getting through that, boys. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, and uh, he's like, cool. Cult icons, yeah. 
Because he went to Brighton for a while, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and that he's he, moved he on Newcastle? now. He? He's somewhere like Newcastle. Because I would have taken him. I, you know, yeah. he would have been one of the people that I would have thought, you know, talk to him maybe. So it, yeah, it, there's some good people out there. There's a lot of very good people out there. What I, what I don't like about football in, in some ways is this thought that there's only ever one person that can do any of these things. You know, that, that one central midfielder or that one manager or that one, you know, there's not. There's loads of them out there that you can bring together and put together in the right way and it will work for you. There's loads of good names out there. We just have to identify the right one for us. Well, that's it. So we'll move on from the uh, the pain of your your real Thank life. You. <laughs> <laughs> it was You've very put... therapeutic, to be honest. <laughs> Hang on, is this FMT two well, yeah, or know, something? <laughs> maybe <laughs> football Manchester therapy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Luke Williamson Art is a family-run business producing digital art prints of iconic and famous football grounds from yesteryear, running since 2017. Also, by entering the code PROJFOOT10, that's P-R-O-J-F-O-O-T-1-0 at the checkout, you'll get 10% off any artwork purchased. So there have been technical issues, I think, with the code. Um, so if it doesn't work, get in touch with Luke, and I'm sure we'll be able to sort it out. Also, if you're looking for a football quiz book with over 700 questions, as well as chapters on football in lockdown and the Diary of a Memorabilia Collector, then look no further than the Football for Brains 21 quiz book by Stephen End. A donation from the sale of each book goes to the Scores Project and Head for Change Charities. Now back to the show. So I'm going to go on to the, the first of the segments. Uh, yeah, this yeah. is the five from five. Yeah. Um, I've dropped the spinner wheel for this because okay. CBA. So no for this, for anyone who's new to it, um, what Kev's going to do is I've got five blocks of questions, numbered one to 11. Mm-hmm. For each one of those blocks, he picks a number. I ask the question. Kev answers it. Seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Good. Very much right. so. So... First block then, Kev. 1 to 11. What do you want, sir? Uh, I'm going to go with a very famous Man United number of 7, please. Okay. So the question is, do you follow any other team apart from your own for any reason? Um, Not massively so but I do I do genuinely see myself as a football fan so I I watch most that I'm able to and if my missus is you know allowing me to as well to a point you know because I have to be aware of that a bit but um so yeah I, I can't say at the moment that I watch a lot of um stuff outside of England I'm much more focused at the moment on English football uh there have been times in the past where I've you know watched a bit of Italian bit of Spanish some of it winds me up some of it I really like all that kind of stuff so I, I kind of stick to what I've grown up with um but I'll watch most things I guess not I mean I do I do look out for uh, before now before they were in the Premier League themselves I used to watch out for the Brentford results because it is my hometown of birth yeah. as it were but I as I say I never felt massively connected to them but other than that not massively so I mean the only other thing that I would say is that there are a couple of clubs uh, that I keep an eye out now because I've played them on Football Manager and I've got a connection through that, which is a so, weird yeah. connection, you know. But uh, but not many, really. I, I am a Man United fan who just watches a lot of football. Yeah. So. so it was Wickham for me. That was the first okay. championship manager. 
mm-hmm. on the Amiga. So right. showing my age there. Um, took Wickham to Europe and the you know, Champions League or European Cup as it was then. And yep. yeah, since, I mean, we're talking 30 years ago now. Sure. So I tend to keep an eye out for them. And ironically, they played my hometown in the FA Cup a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I went down to Adams Park to uh, to watch that. Great day right. out. Starbridge lost, but you know what? Loved it. Anyway, it's not about me. Sorry. No, that's cool. Um, right then. Uh, block two. Okay, let's go for number one. Number one. Right. Favourite derby match involving Man United. So, obviously, you've got Man City as local. You've got the historical with, with Liverpool. Leeds as well with the Roses. Have you got yeah. a favourite one of those fixtures? Um, I, I think it... I'm probably a little bit different to some in that if we go back to that thought of I support my own and I don't oppose anybody else and I genuinely try not to. So I'm not overly bothered about what the others get up to. I would say the bigger game to me still feels like Liverpool over Man City if we come up against them at any point. Um, But ultimately, the simple reality is the last three or four seasons, they've all been incredibly painful when we played Liverpool or Man City, whatever, anyway, most. And so I kind of try and forget about them as quickly as I can. But yeah, I guess, you know, there's no there's no one specific one uh, in terms of the actual match that comes to mind necessarily. Oh, it's cool. Pardon the dog. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Mine's around somewhere being very quiet at the moment. I'm very surprised. Could change at any second. So, yeah, I, I would say the Liverpool rivalry is more impactful for me than the Man City one necessarily. But both are incredibly painful at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, so moving on then. <laughs> Thanks. Right, um, block three. Uh, let's go for number 10. Number 10, that is... Okay, uh, what current Man United player could you see being suited to another sport? Uh, I reckon you put Martinez in an octagon, he's going to go great guns, personally. <laughs> I wouldn't want to face him at all in any way, shape or form. I think he's a looney tune, particularly. So, yeah, I'd go with him in an octagon. That would be fantastic to watch. So, Martinez in the UFC. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> I was going to try and think of the name of the guy who runs it then, but I forgot. Uh, is it Dana White? There we go. Dana White. Get it, get it yeah, sorted. Yeah, come on, Dana, sort it out. Because <laughs> yeah, we all know the, the multi-billionaire UFC owner listens to my podcast. Obviously. Yeah, right. why wouldn't they? Um, uh, anywho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, fourth one. Mm, let's go for number four. Number four. Okay. Uh, which past or present Man United player do you think would make the best prime minister? Well, I mean, I guess from a certain point of view, because there are basically two major sides to politics, aren't there? I guess at the moment there are some that would fully support Gary Neville having a go because he's incredibly opinionated about a lot of uh, political stuff. Uh, I'm not... It's a weird one. I am not impressed with the current government, let's say that, uh, but I'm also not overly political. Uh, yeah. it's it's too again it's too full of conflict and stuff and my personality type can't cope with that and all that kind of stuff and i don't believe half of any of what any of them tell me anyway so uh, there's stuff in there but i'm not a fan of the current government let's let's say that um so i guess a lot of people would say gary neville but i want somebody a little bit more maybe diplomatic than him i think he can still be a little bit out there and confrontational a little bit yeah 
Um, so let's go for somebody like, uh, who would I go for? Let's think about somebody like Solskjaer, for example, who had a really poor stint as manager in a lot of ways. But everybody likes Solskjaer, mostly. He's just a likable fella, uh, you know, tries to draw people together rather than separate people, I think, in a number of ways. Uh, as a player, he seemed like his work ethic and all that kind of stuff was amazing. So you know he'd give for the course. So I'll go for somebody like him just as a random, but I think a lot of people would go Gary Neville these days. Could be an interesting choice. <laughs> I can't imagine him being, you know, when they have the uh, the debates in, mm-hmm. in Parliament, you know, yep. they, they sort of get really shouty. I can't imagine Solskjaer being like that because he's that's quite... What ris- you want to bring that out of him? That's what... I, no, I, I want, want, him, I to want be, him to be the opposite. I want reserved. him to stand in the midst of it and go, when you finish shouting, can we have a yeah. chat? So your own that's time. That's what I want. Come on. You know, that's what I want. Because that's me. That's that's my personality. I don't want a shouty person or, a, uh, you know, that person that's going to be in the face. I want somebody to go, come on then, bring it on. And once you're finished, can we then have a conversation? Yeah, it's like you, I heard this ages ago and I can't remember where or why, but there were... It could have been something to do with work, and they were saying a lot of people get shouty at you. Mm-hmm. If you just keep your tone, keep your calm, yeah. talk normally to them, and they'll be like, They're not on, getting what they why want. Why are they not responding? Yep. So, yeah, you know, that could be an interesting choice. So, now, what uh, I would also say is that everybody out there listening will probably say, But Soul Scar is not a strong enough person, and I get that. But this is a bit of fun, and it's a personality that I was looking for rather than exactly. anything else. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, it could be an interesting choice. I mean, you know, it couldn't do any worse, could he? Let's face it. <laughs> no comment. So, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but you might <laughs> anyway. Right, last one then. Uh, one to eleven. Uh, let's go number nine. Number nine. Okay. Right. This kind of goes back to the question asked about the second team. Um, mm-hmm. So you can swap it if you want, or. No, it's fine. No, we'll go for it. Okay. Carry on, whatever. Uh, and this is the problem with shuffling them, because sometimes you get the ones... <laughs> it doesn't matter. Anyway, is there a team that you keep tabs on for a random reason, i.e. an FM save, or you like the kit? Well, I I, I think FM is more the reason than than most other things. I, you know, I, I don't feel like I've got a team that I look at because of their badge or their kit or, you know, where they play or whatever. So it's an FM reason more than anything. Then there are several. I mean, I've done, even if I just think over the last sort of 24 months, I've done tons of good stuff. Uh, FM 23, which is just about to finish, Football Manager 23, is going to change into 24 very soon has been a very painful experience in a lot of ways for me. And the very first club that I managed on FM23 in the open, uh, the early access beta from this time last year was Valencia in Spain. Uh, I liked Valencia back in the day when it was uh, the likes of David Silva and David Villa and uh, Juan Mata was there and stuff. I thought it was an amazing side. And I've always had them in the back of my head as kind of my pseudo favorite Spanish club, sort of, although I don't really follow them massively. So going and managing them in FM23 was a real, you know, great. Go, let's go and play with Valencia. And they sacked me in a season and a bit. And it was really hard. And their finances were dreadful. And I couldn't figure them out. And they sacked me in the beta. 
later. And it was not a good start to my FM23, but I still feel connected to them. I've since, in the last couple of weeks, gone back to them because I had a break from my old save into FM24 to have a, uh, a bit of a go at something else and went back to them and succeeded a little bit further than I did before. Didn't get the sack, but was potentially on the verge of it again. And I really struggled to figure them out. But I kind of feel a little bit sorry for them in, in the IRL sense then, if that's the situation of their club, because they were mega at one point. They were yeah. really great. So I, I guess it's them that I'm kind of a little bit connected to in a, in a foreign land, as it were. Uh, but as we've already said, I mean, I keep tabs on Brentford a little bit uh, just because they're my place of birth. And other than that, it's Man United. So, yeah, that's the one, really. I mean, a, another random club, Truro City, in the depths of the English-tiered <laughs> system I occasionally look out for because I had a good club, um, a good time with their club on Football Manager a couple of years ago as well. So there's a couple like that. But, yeah, that's mainly it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, before I move on to the next bit, and you mm. kind of alluded to it then, um, and I wanted to talk about it earlier, but I just completely forgot. Um mm -hmm was the homeward bound save that you've done on <laughs> FM23. Yeah. Uh, we'll go back to how the how that side came out, like the, the thought process yep. behind it. What was mm -hmm. what was your thinking on that? So basically as a streamer, you want a, a save that's going to be long term that you think your viewers will be connected to, that you're going to find fun and interesting and is going to sustain you through most of a cycle of a, a, an annual release of a game. So that's basically what we're looking for. Uh, and I've done various types of saves over the time. Um, this time last year, leading into the start of FM23, I was looking through some forums of ideas, you know, different save types rather than just different clubs. You know, what's the purpose of your save? What are you trying to achieve? And I found one paragraph that uh, was titled Homeward Bound Challenge. And it basically said, start in one country and work your way back to your own country. Yeah, that's what it basically said. So it's the homeward bound challenge. Try and get a home. And so I, I read that through. I thought that's an interesting idea. I wonder where I could start it and what I could do um, and whether I could sort of elaborate the idea a little bit and make it a little bit more interesting potentially for a stream. Uh, so I looked around on the map of Europe because my geography is absolutely awful and I wouldn't <laughs> be able to do it without a map. But I was looking around and I thought, OK, so if I'm looking for somewhere to start uh, a journey like that what you want is maybe half a dozen countries away from where you are because it gives you the time to go through a process to get home uh, and i realized that um again we have to be a little bit careful about what we talk about in the way that we do but we've got the conflict going on between russia and ukraine currently at irl yeah and I really didn't want to go as far out as Russia. I didn't think that was appropriate. I didn't really want to shine a light on that particular country at this moment. But I thought, why not start it in Ukraine and shine a light on the fact for a little while that Ukraine football is still going on at the highest level that it can go, even within the conflict that's going on for their country right now, which I think is pretty incredible. So yeah. let's start there shine a light on them for the first couple of months of my save and then try and work my way back to England. But how do we do it? So the way that it worked was ultimately, if you win the league of the country you are in, you get to cross the border into an adjacent country and repeat that process until you get home to England. So the basic um, uh, journey would have been somewhere like 
uh, Ukraine, Poland, into someone like Germany, then into France to use the Channel Tunnel to get back into England to win the Premier League, and that would end the series. That was the basic journey. Yeah, that's the, but the I wanted least resistance. Yes, but I wanted some jeopardy attached to it a little bit. So I basically then decided, okay, so you win the league of the country you're in, you get to cross the border. If you don't win the league of the country you're in within three seasons, you have to stay in that country until you do win it. But because it's now taken you more than three seasons, you now can't move forwards towards England. You have to move sideways and add more countries to the journey. Yeah. So that was the, the little twist on it. So, for example, we started in Ukraine and I took four seasons in Ukraine to win the title. I started at Zoria Luhansk and eventually got the sack with them quite early on. Eventually found the Dynamo Kiev job available and applied for it and got it. Don't know how, but I did. Um, and took that and eventually four seasons into Ukraine, I won the league. So because it had taken me more than three, I had to move sideways, not forwards. So we moved to Romania rather than moving forwards towards England. Spent three seasons there and won the league with Cluj, so I could now move forwards towards England. So what was the next step? It was Hungary. We went into Hungary. Yep. Uh, I found the job at Puskas Academia, a very divisive club, IRL, but an interesting one nonetheless, and I went and managed them. And it took again, it took me four seasons to win that, so I had to move sideways. So we moved into Serbia. I had a one and done in Serbia because I got the Red Star Belgrade or the Svenis Vesda job, whichever you want to call them these days. I got their job and watched them play for a season and win it without me really doing much. So I then moved forwards. But because of various countries not being in the game around them and other bits and pieces, I moved across the water into Italy was my next step. Uh, so I then went into Serie A, got the Lazio job. And again, it took me a while. It took me about six seasons eventually to overturn Juve and Inter Milan and AC Milan and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but got to the point where I'd won Serie A. So that was five European leagues that I'd won. My next step was going to be into Austria because I couldn't yeah. move forward into the likes of France, Germany, whatever it was next, because I'd taken too long. So it was in Aust Austria. So I quit my job as Lazio manager. I'm now a four and a half star continental reputation manager. And I went into Austria and I started to apply for jobs there. And nobody gave me an interview. I, I was kind of a bit Okay, that's a bit weird. So I, I went for about a season and a half in game, not having a job away from the stream. I was doing this behind the scenes because it would be dull otherwise to watch. Uh, and I was just applying for everything that came up and literally nobody would give me an interview and I was a bit confused. So I thought, well, okay, for six months, even though I don't really want to go there, I'm going to widen my search and apply for literally every job anywhere that I've got available. And it could have been Germany, France, England, Spain, whatever it might be. And I'll just see what sort of jobs are out there for me and what I can get. So I applied for every job for six months and I got about three responses and they were all in the third tier of Italy or the second tier of Norway or whatever it might have been. And yeah. I thought, this is really strange. Something about this doesn't feel right. So I handed it off to a friend of mine uh, as a save and uh, they took it around the forums to a couple of people that they know that are high up in some of these things and understand the game much more than I do. And they identified that there was an issue in my 10 months long save that I'd been doing every day on my streams for 10 months. And the issue was this.
Within the tactical setup of your team, there are lots of team instructions that you can give. And one of them is to click a button that says, make the most out of set pieces. So you're actually intentionally trying to get in and around their box and draw them into fouls and all that kind of stuff to get your free kicks and other things. And that's one of the actual things that you are attempting to try and do. Now, in 20 years of playing this save, because I was in about 2046 at the time, I didn't need to do that particularly. It wasn't something I was particularly bothered about doing. So I hadn't ever in any of my tactical setup clicked that button. But for whatever reason, within my 20 season save, it had been, become quite apparent that every major team in the development of football in my universe now desperately needed it as a thing that you focused on as the manager. And because I never did, they never gave me an interview because I don't match the philosophy that their club now had as the changing uh, span of football happened over the, uh, the course of my uh, universe over 20 seasons. So there was literally nothing I could do about it. I could not go and get a high enough job to continue this save into the way that it should have been. And I was fast approaching the, the point where FM24 would be coming out anyway. So we had a conversation in my chat about what do we do? Do we add a new manager in, just carry on? Do we do something else, etc.? And ultimately, a new manager wouldn't have had the experiences that I'd had through the, the club side, have the reputation, the the league wins that I've got, all those kinds of things. So it would feel like a little bit of a, a new game anyway. So we might as well just call it there because we couldn't change it. We couldn't go and take away that bug. So ultimately, at that point, uh, just having one Serie A, I stopped the save and we went and did a couple of other bits uh, over the last few weeks leading up to the new game launch very soon. It was really painful in a lot of ways. I had done this save for 10 months. Uh, every weekday afternoon for a couple of hours, we'd got invested in it. We'd gone on a journey. We were excited to potentially even take it into FM24 and continue it on because that's one of the new features of the new game. You can take your FM23 save into it and carry it on potentially. So I'd even decided maybe we don't have the time to completely finish it, but we might even do that. And then it died on its own. Uh, and we had to, you know, go through a process of figuring out what that looks like. It's, it's The streams have still been fun after that. We've done a couple of other sort of small saves to get us through the line for Just the new game. Yeah, but it's not the same. And it's not no. the connection to the, 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 the save that we were really enjoying. So it, it was difficult. It was a, it was an unfortunate end, but the actual process itself, I really love the concept of the of the type of save, and we will absolutely go back and do a different starting point at some other point in the future. It won't be for FM twenty four, but it might be for FM twenty five, yeah. and we'll see I was what happens. Say, without giving anything away, because obviously you've got your ideas, but FM twenty four, do you know what you're going to do? Just oh, I can I can absolutely tell you all about them. I've I've expressed oh, okay. it all over the place, all over my stream. It's fine. So uh, the the two things that we're doing in the early access beta that drops a couple of weeks before the official launch of the game which is on the 6th of november that's the official launch day so for a couple of weeks it's coming either this week or next week the open early access beta will drop and myself and my podcast boys uh, are all going to play as the same team and see which one of us can do it better basically and the reason that we've chosen the team that we've chosen is because there's a new feature in fm24 where at the very beginning of the game you can can set your starting point in three different ways yes. you can either keep exactly what the club have already done in their transfers 
Uh, so they're all in your club already. They're all settled. They're all there and you carry on regardless. The second option is that you can stagger those transfers and they can come in on the dates that they're officially signed. So they don't all necessarily start at your club immediately, but they will be drip fed in at the points where you sign them. And the right, third option... On deadline day would come yes, in on absolutely. deadline day. Yeah. So you start before that. And so it's going to take you a while to get to deadline day, but you know those players are coming in at some point. So it's a different you know, uh, process of bringing them in. And the third one, which is what we're going to be doing, because we're going to be trying to do it better than the, the other three of the podcast, is that there's a, a, a new feature called Your World, which takes back some of the transfers that the club have officially done within this transfer window. And you get the cash back, basically, and you can start again and do your own version of their transfer window. And that's what we're going to do at Chelsea because they've spent an absolute fortune and an absolute madness. So for a couple of weeks of the early access, the the guys in the podcast, we're all going to play as Chelsea. We're all going to do it our way and see who can do it better. And and that's the, the way that's going to work. When the official game launches, we go into our own individual saves of varying types. And I'm going back to an idea that I did whilst I was a YouTuber years ago, uh, <clears throat> which is basically a British Isles journeyman uh, series. Uh, so the journeyman is basically rather than pick a club and try and make them the best in the world. So you start in tier six of England and take the club all the way to the top and try and win a Champions League. I'm more about... I want to get my manager to the top and it doesn't matter where he goes. I just need him to get there somehow, some way. So you start with no coaching badges, no experience, and you go and you have to apply for jobs in the third tier of Northern Irish football or whatever it is to see who will take a chance on you. And my series is called Rolling in the Isles because we're a British Isles journeyman <laughs> series. So we're going to travel around the British Isles and try and improve my manager to the point where the end of the series happens if I get to one Champions League final with any club that I can get to. And it doesn't matter if I win it or I lose it, that's the end point. So we are going to probably end up going through, you know, three of the four, four or five different countries. We'll be at various levels throughout. And the intention eventually is to get to one of those big clubs in England and try and get to a Champions League final and win some stuff along the way. And, and that's going to be my main series for FM24, basically. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I've got planned. And and whether or not that's a quick, you know, whether or not I'm done in seven months and we've got a couple of months at the end of the cycle to do other things or whether it lasts all the way through to the end of the cycle, I have no idea. But for now, that's what the that, that's that, what the plan is. That's part of the beauty of it as well. It is absolutely. It really is. Cool. Um, so we've got sidetracked slightly because my memory's <laughs> rubbish. That's all good. But back on track. Um, yes. The next bit I want to go through is four for you. Yes. So again, for anyone who's new to this, uh, first question: Why are you new to it? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so quick breakdown of it. I've asked Kev to pick five games um, and for each of those games, basically pick a player to experience that game from their point of view. Yep. And he's either done a 4-1 split in favour of Man United mm -hmm. or a 3-2 split, either or. It's 3-2. It's three, two, three, two. That's much. fine. So um, let's go with your first one then, Kev. Yeah, the so, to start. so uh, a game that I'd like to experience from a particular player's perspective. So the first one is from Man United. Um, and again... It might show my age a little bit compared to some people that might be listening in. 
because I was very invested in the uh, the 90s football primarily. It was my kind of time, the class of 92. But just before they really came to prominence, when they were just uh, in and around the uh, the youth academy, Man United won the first Premier League title in 92-93. Uh, and the game that I've chosen to experience was a game against Sheffield Wednesday that Man United had, where Steve Bruce got a couple of very late headers in the game to turn it from a 1-0 defeat to a 2-1 win, which propelled us on to winning the title in that section of games. It was really important. We were so close to doing it. And coming back, it was literally dying seconds. It was kind of either side of 90 minutes or whatever it was that he got two goals, two really great headers. And just the euphoria of that and watching Ferg and Brian Kidd run onto the pitch and do their celebrations and all that kind of stuff. Going to say that's the uh, the famous clip where was it Brian Kidd's on his yeah. knees, like yeah, the, the scene from Platoon sort of thing. Totally. And I just want to experience that euphoria from the possession of Steve Bruce, who I think was an exceptional central defender. People look at him these days and see a manager who struggled a little bit, hasn't really found where he really fits, all that kind of stuff. I get it. I really do. But he was an exceptional central defender. Uh, and he might show up later in our conversations as well. But um, yeah, that's that's the first game. Really, really big moment for that particular season and a fantastic moment. Yeah, but personally, Steve Bruce and Euphoria, not <laughs> ones that tend to go together. But anyway. I'm sure that's true for you, yeah. Oh, right. So. Bruce again is coming back to gigs. Six still waits. Bruce out to Pannister. And still they wait. Bruce! Yes! Unbelievable! There's still a bit to be done, but Brian Kidd and Alec Ferguson are almost celebrating the championship. Your second game then, Kev? Yeah. Uh, so the second one, uh, we were talking just before we went and recorded this, and it's a, a goal that you've had on before, I'm sure, and a goal that you'll have on many, many t- more times. But it's not just the goal for me, and that's really important. I want to go back to the game for England to play against Greece and Beckham uh, from his perspective. We got a 1-1 draw against Greece, which doesn't sound particularly great, but we needed a draw to qualify for the tournament that we were uh, going for in that particular section of games. And we got it in the dying seconds through a fantastic free kick. But it's not just the free kick. What I want people to realise, if you haven't gone back and watched that or you weren't around at the time, there are very, very few games I have watched where basically one player has dominated the game for you and dragged your team to something. And Beckham dragged us to something that day. Nobody else was on form, really. Nobody else contributed massively. He seemed to be everywhere. He was playing left back, right wing, centre forward, centre back, half the time in goal. I don't know what it was he was doing. <laughs> I don't know what he was on that day. But it was amazing. He was so good. And anybody that thinks that David Beckham is two things, and that's a crosser of the ball and a famous person, doesn't realise how good he actually was with his work ethic, with his leadership. It's what we were talking about before. He led by example. He drove you to be better. 
And that's what I love about that game. It's not just the goal, which was amazing, but that all-round performance. He was everywhere for 90 minutes and dragged us to something, which was amazing. I suppose in that four-year window as well, um, going back to the Argentina game in 98 through Mm -hmm. to the 2002 World Cup, he was on what you'd probably call, I mean, I'm using a bit of of wrestling terminology here, but for a storyline, redemption arc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He he was the heel in 98. Yeah. After that, and then he, was. he becomes the you know the fan favorite babyface in 2002. Yep, you know, with the whatever haircut he had at the time. <laughs> Again, Argentina come up, didn't they? And he got the penalty. Yeah. The, um, did. We beat them, I believe. I mean, it was a long time ago, so it was a very long time ago, yeah. But it was it was an amazing moment for him, and I think, as you say, a bit of redemption in there as well, which was very yeah. cool. And sort of on the, on the subject of Beckham as well, I started watching the documentary on Netflix last night, okay, mm-hmm. and yeah. I know, you know, people get this idea of him as being a bit of a, being a bit thick and what have mm-hmm. you, but he generally come across as quite a decent bloke. You yeah, know, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't think you realise until you see him. Yeah. I'll say stripped back, but not in a, you know, shoot for a magazine sort of sense. Sure. You know, it's just him being him and his love for football. Yeah. And from, you know, that's all he wanted to do as a kid. Mm. And boy, so, did um, he do it. <laughs> and he did it damn well. Was he captain at that point? In, yeah, I would imagine it? so. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. sort of, Period for him, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Foul on Sheringham, free kick. Will Beckham have another attempt to go? We've played two and a half minutes of stoppage time. England trail by two goals to one. Beckham could raise the roof here with a goal. I don't believe it. David Beckham scores the goal to take England all the way to the World Cup finals. Third one, then. Okay, third one is a bit of a, uh, again, it's back in time a little bit from a Man United perspective, and uh, there's a specific reason for it. Uh, So in 1991... Man United reached the uh, European Cup Winners' Cup final. This was before they changed the European setups. We had the Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, and Man United, <laughs> it is, absolutely. And Man United played Barcelona in the final. Now, we beat them in that final 2-1. And you'd think maybe that's just the reason we beat Barcelona. I mean, they were a great side. They got to the Cup Winners' Cup final. They were good. But the specific reason that I would go to this one is, again, it's about the player. And I want to um, experience it from the perspective of Mark Hughes. Now, Mark Hughes got the two goals for us. He was a great striker for Man United. Again, people who only know his management career will feel a little bit underwhelmed by him, maybe. But he was a great striker, very, very strength orientated, but still had a lot of good technique. But the reason this one's a special one, he got two goals against Barcelona. He went to play for Barcelona for a couple of seasons uh, in the sort of three or four seasons before 91. And it didn't work out for him. He was in and around the same sort of time that uh, Gary Lineker was there. And Lineker went off and scored a bunch of goals for them. And Hughes struggled a little bit to get his goals and be a big part of that setup under was it Bobby Robson at the time probably was I can't remember but um but yeah ultimately he then came back to United having gone through Bayern Munich as well and came back to United having started there 
and got his redemption. He got his two goals against a club where he didn't feel like he properly showed them who he was and what he was about and what he could do. And then in the final, he managed to do it, scored a really cracking second goal. And we got the win in the end and won that uh, European title. So it was it was purely the redemption arc for Hughes, really, that made me go to that one. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. So with that, I'll say he's a, I'll spark he's a, I'd, I'd put him in a, a legend bracket mm-hmm. for United, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. He, he, he was very, very good. And he was more than just a goal scorer because he had such physical strength. He wasn't massive, but he just was so stocky and yeah. hard to play against. And so he could hold the ball up really well and bring other people in. But, also had those half volleys and all sorts of other magnificent things that he did at his time, which was about technique and skill as well. So he was an all-round really good central striker, definitely. Yeah, kind of like a more technically able Jeff Horsfield. I'll go with that. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I, I love Jeff, obviously, for what he did for us in the Great Escape. But sure. He weren't the best. <laughs> and he'll probably yeah. admit that himself again. <laughs> not that he's going to listen to this, but anyway. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> If he does now, I'll be I'll be hiding because he's a big guy. <laughs> Here's onside. There's a chance for another one here. Maybe not now. Yes, there is. A fantastic goal by Hughes. Spreads his arms wide and probably makes the game safe for United. I thought he'd taken that far too wide. He was forced wide by the goalkeeper's attentions. But what about yeah. a little more time? Goya Kachir in comes Dennis I mean, it's Um, so that's three down. You've got two to go. Uh, yep. Penultimate choice then, Kev? Okay, so the, the penultimate choice is way back. Uh, and this is um, even before I was born, but I have subsequently watched it enough to really want to go through this. Uh, so we're, we're talking Brazil in the 70s. Uh, oh. The 1970 World Cup final for Brazil against Italy. And it would be to experience it from the perspective of Pelé. Now, people, again, it's all about generational stuff. People hear the word, the the name Pele, or they hear Maradona, or whatever it is, and you get certain images and thoughts that come to your head about these players. But unless you were in and around them, or you go and research them enough, you don't really realize how great they actually were. You just think, well, they can't be as good as De Bruyne, because he's the new version of them, or whatever it might be, or Ronaldo, or Messi, or whatever. But they were amazing for their generation. They were real trailblazers. So this World Cup final comes round and it's against for Brazil and Pele it's against a really good Italy side they are top of the tree they know what they're doing they're structured and organized and they're going to be really hard to beat and Brazil don't completely decimate them although the scoreline of 4-1 suggests it was Italy was still in the game they still did some good things but they kind of did. They kind of decimated them. Uh, And the goals that they scored may not um, all be complete world-class ones, but the the later part of the game where Italy were completely on the ropes and kind of out for the count, Brazil put some passing moves together and eventually ended up with the final very famous World Cup goal from, uh, was it Revilio uh, Revilio or something? I can't remember what his name is now, but he scores that um, wonderful shot on the angle. Yeah, from the angle on the on the top of the box. 
And just the build-up play to that and the fact that Pele had got his goal earlier in the game as well and was instrumental to what they were, they blew them away. And anything that comes from uh, from that point onwards with regards to Brazil and how people perceive Brazil as a footballing nation, I kind of think was birthed at that moment. And everybody else within Brazil football has just been trying to get to the standards of that 1970 World Cup final squad. Uh, and I think they were amazing. So that match, because they decimated a, a team like Italy in the final, that's my fourth one. You say, you say about the Brazil 1970 team. Um, my dad, he brought a video. Mm-hmm. That's how far back we go here. Yep. And it was basically, you know, uh, chartering the uh, the path that Brazil took through that World Cup. Right. And little did we know that we watched it that a certain Jeff Astle would crop up on the highlights okay. as well, obviously, you know, for our sure. side of things. Yep. You know, the, the king for us. But yeah, that Brazil team was just... It was amazing. It was something else. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, and ahead of its that, time in so way, so many ways. Other than the Gordon Bank save, which was, mm-hmm. I still can't get my head around that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, the, the one that I remember, and this was a miss, which you've probably mm-hmm. seen as well, where the ball goes through and Pele, he goes one way. Yeah. The keeper falls for it. The ball goes the other side of the keeper. Yeah. And then as Pele comes back round, he tries to sort of hit it at an angle and it yeah. just goes wide. Just goes wide. Yeah. Not, how did you miss that? You've done all this and you miss that. Come on. But how did Sorted he think out. to do it in the first uh, place? That's he was probably thing. thinking about three, four, five yeah. steps ahead. He Absolutely. probably was on a different match, let alone. <laughs> sure, I agree. And yeah, God so bless him. Was, he's no longer yeah. with us. No, absolutely. Uh, but he was—he was a phenomenon. Uh, and at that point, that 1970 Cup uh, World Cup final was an amazing performance by a great team. So that's my fourth. Definitely. Antonio Giuliano has come on as a substitute for the Italians, but excellent tracking back by Tostau. Italy have given this everything, but they're being outclassed now. Clodoaldo. It's like he's slaloming down a ski slope. The Brazilians in the crowd absolutely love that. Revelino picks out Jarzinho. Pele rolls it for Carlos Alberto! Right then, your fifth and final choice for this bit. So you would you would potentially expect as a Man United fan that I'd go to the 99 final. And I kind of thought about it, but I haven't uh, because I okay. think a lot of people probably would if they were asked this question as a United fan. So I've left that one alone, but it really could have been part of it. I mean, if you don't want to be Solskjaer winning the cup final in the dying seconds of a, uh, of a thing like that, I don't know what you're in football for. But So it's not going to be that. Uh, and, and the reason that I've chosen the one that I have is because the actual match itself was really impactful for me personally, uh, and I'm sure it was for a number of other United fans. So there was a very, very famous win that we got in uh, Europe against Roma. Now, we were in a knockout stage against Roma in 2007 in, in the European stuff. Um, we played the first leg and they beat us at their place 2-1. This was a, t- a time when they had like uh, Francesco Totti and all that kind of stuff. They were a very good side, really good side. And I was really concerned about whether we could cope with them over a two-leg game. We lost the, two- the first game 2-1. Uh, and we went into the second game and I genuinely didn't know what I was expecting. Uh, but I thought it was probably going to be quite a big defeat in some form. Uh, And then 
The reason I've chosen Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, to see the game through is only because he scored a couple of our goals, but it literally could have been any of the team. I just wanted to be part of this game. We beat Roma at our place in response to their 2-1-7-1. I did and, think that was the... And I seven, never, yeah. I never went into the game. I still remember it really vividly. I never went into that game thinking we are going to win this game. We are going to dominate them. We're going to get through this tie. I thought we're 2-1 down. They're really good. Totty's probably going to do us in and we might struggle here. And for whatever reason, just that day everything worked and we absolutely smashed them 7-1 and I got to the end of the game and I sat there for a while and I genuinely just sat and thought I have no idea what I've just seen (laughs) I have no idea how they did it but Ronaldo was amazing Rooney was amazing Michael Carrick got a goal uh, or two some really good long shots from Carrick I think he got two uh, but was great in midfield the team worked. It was a complete unit working in the way that Fergie wanted it to and all that kind of good stuff. And it was just an amazing moment. I will never forget sitting at the end of 99 final, just sitting there going, I have, uh, how, what, why, who, what, wow, why? <laughs> I couldn't process the 99 final at all for a long time. But this as an individual game in the middle of a knockout run was just, it blew me away. I didn't expect it but I'd love to have gone and been part of a team that just got it right on the day and nothing went against them, really. Amazing... Everything just fell into place. And yeah, then you've got lots of other players of peak Rooney. Yep. Uh, you know, peak Ronaldo. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I remember, I've mentioned this before, I remember seeing Ronaldo um, mm-hmm. play for United quite early on. Um, yep. We played, yeah, it was Albion versus United, the League Cup. Okay. Um, probably only a season or two before he'd only just signed for, and he had the long little mm-hmm. twirly bits of pasta off his head, and he was yep. just like little moany little git. It's like, mate, sure. you think then it's like you ain't going to do anything, and then lo and behold, yeah. you get this beast of an athlete coming through. You know, a few yeah. years later, it's like, yeah, okay, take that back. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. He's an interesting character, and let's just talk about him for a moment because I mean that there are some people that will have only seen as a United fan will have only seen his second run at the club in the last few seasons. And I feel very sorry for them because they did not get to see what Ronaldo was really. And the end of it was messy. And I think that he ultimately destroyed a little bit of his legacy at United. But I think over the course of his career, I think I'm open enough to say, I don't think he will ever consider himself to be as much of a legend at United, as much as he is a legend at Real Madrid. I think that will be the club that he looks back on and goes, that's the time when I was at my best, did my best, was the best and and worked brilliantly. But for a couple of seasons before he moved to Real Madrid, I've not seen many better at United than him. He was, you know, and the likes of Rooney had to do a lot of work for him to free him to be who he yeah. wanted to be but he was exceptional at that particular point and what we saw in the latter part coming back was a, a mere shadow of what he was at that point so anybody that hasn't seen him play in that period as a united fan go back and check some of it out because it was amazing so just he's kept himself in such great condition as well. Oh, it's a freak yeah. of nature, isn't he? He really, really is. Really is. The sort of physique we can only dream of. 
Yeah, which you're not kidding. Played <laughs> by De Rossi and then by Mancini. Rooney. Beautifully back to Giggs. Hard and low, looking for Smith. Ronaldo! Oh, that surely seals it. Two for him on the night. Five for United. Champions League semi-finals. Here we come. <laughs> Solskjaer's got ever in support here. He might have a go. Oh, and it's in! Patrice Everett with his first European goal for United. And it's their seventh for the night. And this scoring just keeps on coming. Um, all right, so that's your five matches for four for you. Um, yep. I'm just thinking there, there's... In fact, four out of those five have not been mentioned before. Oh, well, there you go. That's pretty good. You've done it right there. 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 Yeah, I'll take that. To to paraphrase Meatloaf, four out of five ain't bad. I'll take it. (laughs) Uh, We're going to move on then to the final segment of this. And um, it's a shame because I've been an absolute joy to speak to you. Oh, it's been lovely. Um, A trippier through time. And as you you did a play on words with your British Irish thing earlier. (laughs) You might have noticed I like a bit of a pun with these segments. I did, indeed, absolutely. Um, so the concept of this is, rather than your normal 1 to 11, mm-hmm. um, Kevin, obviously previous guests as well that have done this, has got to pick his best or favourite Man United 11 mm-hmm. with players from the 60s to the 2020s. But yep. the caveat is he can't have any more than, any more than two players from one particular decade yep. unless... He invokes the City Lights rule, ironically, mm-hmm. also Man United fans. Good lads, great music. <laughs> Give them a listen. Nice. Bit of a plug for them. They are, the, honestly, brilliant. Fantastic. Right. Back onto it. He can have mm-hmm. one extra player in one decade only. And I have done that. Ah, so the City Lights rule works then? Apparently so. Hurrah. <laughs> so, um, first of all, what formation have you gone for? Now, obviously, being an FM player, you've played various formations across the years so you could have yep. like a front five or something yeah. yeah i've made up a ton of them in my time as yeah. well that have been really weird and skewy uh so i am i am a child of the uh 70s 80s and into the 90s was my main point of of man united and football in general so i am in a 4-4-2 that's literally what i was just down before you said it. <laughs> as soon as you said that it's like it, it's going to be 4-4-2 it is Absolutely. I mean, I think there's some uh, wriggle room with the players that I've got out wide and up front that can all rotate and move around. So we could drop people in and do other bits and pieces, but it's basically a 4-4-2. Yeah. So we'll start off in goal in that case. Okay. So this was a really interesting process because you can only pick a couple of players from different decades, uh, from individual decades, etc. It was really difficult. So there are lots of players that won't get into this team that actually I would put in my all-time best 11 for yeah. United, etc. But this is what we've got. And I think there'll probably be quite a lot of crossover with other United guests as well because of how you have to fit these criteria. So, I mean, my first one is Schmeichel. Uh, there, there are two goalkeepers it could be. It could have been Van der Sar. It could have been Schmeichel. Yeah. Either one I'd been very happy with. But if you ask me purely from my own footballing experiences of watching the game over the last 40 years, 
who the best goalkeeper I've ever seen, it's Schmeichel. The the star jump that he brought in to block things, the, the demand that he had on other players, the command of his area, the distribution on those long throws that he could place, yeah. basically throw from box to box was ridiculous. He was just a presence and he led the team at times as well. And he was instrumental in a couple of very key moments. So it has to be him, although Van der Sar was exceptional. And with that as well, going back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, Anana, um, mm-hmm. Schmeichel being there, you knew as a centre-half or, or, or full-back for you yeah. know, either or. If you were if you were beaten as that last line of outfield defence, yeah. you've got him behind you. Still got him. You've got yeah. every faith that that ball is not going in the net because, let's face it, as a striker, Absolutely. you'd be bricking it going up against someone like that. <laughs> you would imagine so, wouldn't you? He just yeah. stares at you with like that Danish... Death. I was like, yeah, right, it's, okay. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, there there are some people that don't quite rate him as highly as that, and I, you know, that's fine. That's understandable. People have opinions. That's all right. But I genuinely think this guy was as good as it gets. Yeah. I really do. He would have been nineties, wouldn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the nineties. Right. Um, back four. Then you can go left to right. You can go right to left. You can start with okay. centre halves if you want. <laughs> Thank you. We'll go right to left. Uh, so we'll start at right back. Uh, and a lot of what you'll find in my choices moving forward is that there are several players that go across a couple of different decades. Yeah. And I've kind of just picked the one that I need it to be to fit them into the team in a way. It's not necessarily when they were at their peak, maybe. Uh, but the first one from the noughties is where I'm putting him is Gary Neville. Uh, again, we've had some good fallbacks over my time at United. I mean, going back past the last couple of years with Valencia was pretty decent, but I didn't think he was a totally amazing fallback. I think he was a bit more of a right winger that was converted there a bit. Yeah, he did uh, a job. We, we did a job, absolutely. But, you know, we had the likes of Paul Parker played there years ago. We yeah. had um, Viv Anderson that played there for a while. Um, a couple of other people. But the minute Gary Neville showed up on that right-hand side in the sort of early to mid-90s, he kind of just made it his own. And he was just that type of player where he will tell you himself and has done several times over the years, he was not the best. He really wasn't. He had flaws in his game. He had to work really hard, but he did that. He worked really hard to get to where he could be one of the best most consistent players in the in a squad full of superstars and for that he goes in at my right fullback position definitely he he was the best i've seen at right back definitely and still has nightmares about graham Dorans. oh i'm sure I, i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure he has nightmares about all sorts of people yeah. in the end i remember but... i mean i can only go by one you know from what i've seen personally but it was was it 2011 maybe somewhere around then mm-hmm. um right. man united had come to the hawthorns probably won again which is no great surprise yeah but Neville fouled Dorans in the, I think it was in the box. Right. Nothing got given, but you could tell he was just lacking that sort of bit of pace that he'd had yep. a few years prior. Whereas, you know, yep. Neville from two or three years pre- previous to that would have caught him, got the ball, sure. moved on. And he, were, he, but... he said, I think it was in and around that game that he basically said he knew he was done at that yeah. point, ultimately, you know, and it happens to every professional footballer, I would imagine. And that was his moment. So, yeah, shame, but it happens to everyone. But he was great. He was really great. Uh, so then we got my central defensive partnership, my central defenders. Uh, and if I were to say to you that I've got one from the 80s, although probably made more of a splash in the 90s, and then one from the 2010s, where do you think we okay. might be going? What do you think? I don't know. 80s, I mean, 
Possibly Steve Bruce. Yeah, there you go. He was bought in about 87, somewhere say, around yeah. there, and then captained the side through the early 90s as well, but was exceptional. Uh, so he's the first one. Yeah. Uh, the, the one player in the defence that I'm really sad I couldn't get in purely through the time that he played was Yap Stam, because I think he was amazing. Yeah. He would have been an absolutely amazing partner in central defence, but I couldn't get him in just because there were too many people from that period, basically. So in the end, I went through the 2010s and I went for Vidic. And again, you could have gone for Pallister alongside Bruce. You could have gone yeah. for Rio Ferdinand. You, you know, there are lots of very good central defenders that we've had. But I think uh, Vidic came into the club, eventually led the club in a lot of ways and was very, very good. And I think uh, has got a little bit more pace about him than maybe some give him credit for, uh, Vidic. He wasn't slow. I think Bruce was a little less quick. Yeah. But I think those two bruisers together, you wouldn't want to go anywhere near them half the time, I think. Uh, you'd so, uh, you'd know you'd had a match if you were going up against them as a striker. I think so, absolutely. So those are my two central defenders. If we then move to the left side <clears throat> of the defence, um, and we are on my second of three 90s. That's the, that's the era that I was really connected to the club, and I couldn't leave these three out. So Schmeichel was the first one, yeah. and Dennis Irwin is the yep. second one at left back. Evra comes close to him, but the, the thing that I always say about Dennis Irwin is if you never saw him play, he literally never got below a 7.5 average rating in any game he ever played. And he often got an eight and a half instead out of 10. He might never have been the 10 and never have got the plaudits of being the best player on the pitch, but he never did anything that let you down ever. So you know the Most minimum that you're going to get from him. Which absolutely. 7.5 average rating every week. And he could play right fullback or left fullback um, and was amazing. Uh, free kicks, penalties, also all that sort of stuff. But yeah, consistency all the way through, and he would definitely be in mine. Um, then again, we get to a point where you have a conversation. Is it somebody like David Beckham, who I think was exceptional in a lot of ways, but I can't fit him in because of when he played and the other players that I've got around him. So we've gone to the other extreme time-wise and we've gone to George Best instead because he was an amazing player and I needed a couple from that sort of era to balance out the other players in and around the squad that I've got. Uh, the team that I've got, should I say. So George Best playing. He could play on the right. He could play on the left. You could play him wherever you wanted to. So you could but, probably stick him in goal. He'd do better absolutely. than most. Now, I am I am fully aware that he was a flawed genius in a lot of ways. And it won't be the last time we say that about this Man United eleven. But he was also totally a genius. He was beyond yeah. his time. He was an amazing wide player. Really hard to play against. And if only he could have kept his mental the mental side of his game going and kept a control of himself there would be no disputing that he would have been one of the very 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 best ever to play and he already is but i think it's tinged a little bit with the sadness of kind of what he did to himself yeah. as well he was one of the first ones to sort of fully embrace not just the football side but like the, the rock and roll lifestyle that came with it and that carried him away a little yeah. bit i think so yeah but he was amazing on his day so he's he's one of the players yeah, i say in terms of what he did on the day. pitch yeah yeah absolutely but, uh, was he, sorry, so, 60s or 70s 
60s. He, he covered both, didn't he? he? He could have been at both, and I haven't gone into the 70s particularly, so he could okay. have been there, but I've gone in for the 60s, basically. But if he's more 70s, that's fine, because I don't have anybody there either. So yeah, this is your team, Kev. I'm going to do to write it down, so I'll make sure it's um, all legit. So, yeah, so that's where we're at. So then we go to my central midfielders, and again, we're in the same position. I'd love Roy Keane. I'd love Paul Scholes. I think Michael Carrick is underestimated, but I can't place them in because of who else I've got in and around those decades. And there were other conversations. So again, we've gone further back and we've gone to a guy that you'll know very well in Brian Robson. Yep. Because uh, we bought him from West Brom uh, um, in the 80s. 90, I'll say 1980, 81, something like Somewhere that. Somewhere around there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's from the 80s for my team. That's where I've placed him in, in that. But he went through to about 96 or something, I think, for us. Yeah, because he, he was there like for... That. Uh, like when you started winning the like the, the Premier League. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's that thing of there will be some United fans that will only see the back end of his career and then his management and think what all the fuss was about. But in his day, between sort of mid to late 80s, I think he was the best midfielder that England had. And there was a reason that he captained United and captained England. He was a typical sort of almost box-to-box midfielder. He'd do his defensive work, but he'd get on the end of things as well. He had an engine. He he was injury-prone at times, which yeah. was unfortunate for him. But he was he was an amazing captain of a football club as well. It was what you really wanted to drive you forward. Uh, so, yeah, he gets into my central midfield. He possibly wouldn't have if I could have found a way to get Keane in. But ultimately, I couldn't. So Robson is there, absolutely on merit. Amazing. Um, and the second player in my central midfield, again, is the same sort of thing. I had to go further back to get somebody in because uh, I couldn't fit all the players from the slightly um, sort of 90s, 2000s generation. So we've gone all the way back and put Bobby Charlton in that central midfield because he okay. was exceptional. He, he could, um, People's perception of Charlton is, you know, what was his position? Is he a striker? Is he a midfielder? What He's kind of a bit of both in a way. He was, he was a very, very good central midfield player primarily, but got on the end of things, Supported the front guys very, very well. It was often in and around the box at, at the point where we were going for things. Um, but played in that central midfield more than anything and, and was exceptionally gifted. In, uh, for his generation, there's a, a reason why he is so well thought of. I mean, we had the uh, the triad of Best, Law and Charlton, uh, Dennis Law, who didn't get into my side but could have. Uh, in that uh, era, there's a reason why there's a statue of them outside of Man United Stadium. They were so amazing. That for no reason. And, they, and he did it for England as well, Bobby Charlton. He was, yeah. he was phenomenal for England as well. So he gets in absolutely on merit. Uh, so he's from the 60s, I've put, but again, I can't remember when he finished. It might have been in the 70s as well, so or even earlier than that, in the 50s, possibly. I can't remember where he started, but he was definitely through the 60s, where we won the European Cup, having had the Munich air disaster before yes. and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he's in there. My, my left side could have been all number of people. Uh, I think whilst he's a divisive figure, Giggs has to be in that conversation. Didn't put him in for this particular one, slightly because of the divisive nature of him. But we've already mentioned Ronaldo and I'm going to give it to him. Uh, and he, again, 
did he play mostly on the left for us? No. Did he play up top sometimes? Yes. Did he play out wide right for us? Yes. Did he play left? Yes. He could do anything. But I just want to put him in because that period of uh, the uh, the noughties where he was at the club wasn't there for absolutely that long, really, when you look back at it. Only like, I don't know, what was it, four or five seasons, something so like it wasn't, that? It wasn't a massive stint, was it? it but wasn't, it was an impact. But, but those last couple of seasons that he was there with Rooney and that sort of 2007-8 team with Rooney, Tevez and Ronaldo rotating at the top of our uh, attacking lineup was a sight to behold. Scary. So, yeah, it really was. So for partly for what he did moving forward at Real, but also for what he did at United, uh, Ronaldo gets into my, my team on the left. Okay, so that's um, just leaving your strikers now, isn't yep. it? And then we got two strikers, one from the 90s and one from the 10s. Uh, the 10s is probably more um, uh, easy to figure out, I guess, because it's Wayne Rooney and he's the leading goal scorer of Man United all time. Uh, still a little bit of a divisive figure, I think, in terms of occasionally he threw his toys out the pram and thought about leaving and other bits and pieces. But stuck around, did enough, cements himself as a legend, was really that. Started with us at about the age of 18, having come through at Everton at 16. Uh, made an impact in his first game in a European game and got a hat-trick, I think it was, in his first appearance. So and it, just never stopped scoring. So was against Fenerbahce think yeah um, i think yeah. something like that it was yes yeah. absolutely in that first game so it made an Im immediate impact and there were a couple of lean spells of course there were he had a long career at united and did incredibly well and left in his early 30s or whatever it was to move on but ultimately he's the leading goal scorer of all time for man united he's that for england as well for now until harry kane eventually breaks up i would imagine but there's a reason why and it's not just his goal scoring he's another one that gave everything to the cause and was playing half the time at left wing half the time in central midfield because he'd dive back in and try and help out and forget that he was a striker all that kind of great stuff that you want from your players and so he gets in uh, on that uh, on that strength really so that's the first of the two and the second of the two is the first name on any man united uh, 11 that i ever put together because he was the best player i ever saw play the game for a period but again, was a total lunatic and a flawed genius, and that's Cantona. Yep. He absolutely stole the show at Old Trafford for a three-year period, basically. Just walked in, went, hi, I'm the king of this place, watch me roar. And everybody went, yes, Eric, go for it. And occasionally went over the top, occasionally did silly things, even before and after his Man United career, he was doing some weird things and all that kind of stuff. But when you put him on a football pitch and you ask him to do something because we are struggling or we need somebody to do something, there was nobody better than him. And he dragged us to stuff for a couple of seasons, I would say. Not on his own. He had a very good amount of good players around him. And then he was also the linchpin that was in and around that class of 92 when they came through in the early days as well. Uh, but he was phenomenal and he would absolutely be the first on my team sheet of any sort of Man United 11. Yeah, I mean, going back to the the Beckham documentary, um, again, lots of this in the first episode, but one of the things he uh, Beckham mentions yep. is after he'd scored, I think it was, it was more excited about celebrating with Eric Cantona than he was scoring mm -hmm. his goal for Man United. Yep. And again, you know, for someone of that stature to say that mm -hmm. about, Someone, yeah, you know, that tells you how high in regard yeah. Cantona's held, and obviously, you know, from what you yeah. just said, it's the same for I'd say a lot of fans, definitely of certain generation. 
Definitely. Um, yeah, you know, younger ones probably wouldn't know as much about him. They've probably been, you know, they've, they've seen the Kung Fu kick on YouTube, but sure. Like I say, flawed genius. Yeah. I, I absolutely see and accept the flaws, but he was a genius at football. He really, yeah, you, really. You was. let him off for the mental stuff that he does because of what he can do. As much as it's possible to do with anybody you do. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's been in the Liam Gallagher music video, so yeah, <laughs> kudos for that as well. For well there you go. <laughs> uh, Sorted. Um, right, so we've got the team. Now, yes. is it as obvious as to who's going to be in charge of this team as I think it might be? Or have you gone a bit left field? Or well, It's got to be Ralph Ranick, hasn't it? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, it's, it's got to be Fergie. I mean, there's no yeah. other way to go about it. I mean, he struggled for five seasons, but he found his way. And when he did, the most amazing thing about him that people seem to forget, because they see a bit of a grumpy old Scottish bloke occasionally who played a few mind games and stuff, but he changed his team every three seasons or whatever it was. And he kept them at the top of the of the the league whilst changing it constantly and, and tweaking it and moving it and shaping it and bringing new players in and kicking out old guard that he thought was kind of just done or whatever and more often than not made mostly the right decisions there are yeah. a few clangers in there because of course there is but he, there is nobody better than him in my mind fair enough can't argue with that i mean it's like um it, like, it was like long-term rotation, wasn't it? You know, yeah. not like someone like yeah. Pep now who's changing four or five players every match. Yeah, Fergie was like every couple of seasons, like you say, yeah. few go out, few new ones. Well, there was in, that. There was that, that one core. season. There was that one season where in the summer everybody thought he'd lost his mind because he sold Mark Hughes, Paul Ince, and Andre Kanchelskis in one summer, three stalwarts of the Man United team. But he knew, and we didn't, that he had. Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Nicky Butt, Paul Scholes, David Beckham and Giggs already was there. And he knew that they were coming through and he just went, that's what we're going to do. We're going to bring those guys through because I think they've got it. And we're going to kick three seasoned pro uh, professionals that were key to the Man United first team out of the club and bring these guys in. And everybody went, you can't win things with kids. Yep. And he blooming well did. There's, there's no other. I mean, I suppose um, oh, I've forgotten his damn name now. Busby, Matt Busby oh, yeah, could yeah. have been mm -hmm. sure. in in the reckoning, but absolutely. Say, in mean, terms it's, of it's it's a different generation. It's a different style of football. It's also a different circumstance. What Matt Busby will always get the credit for is he held a club together when they went through the Munich air disaster and all that that entailed, and we lost a squad basically yeah at that point and we had to reinvent the team and two years later he won big time in the european cup and that's an amazing thing to achieve from 66 to 68 or wherever it was that that turnaround was amazing amazing so he will always get the kudos from me for for what he did for the club but nobody matches Fergie because that was my era of football. And I will never I will never see the like of it again. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, don't I just want to be competitive. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the least you want, isn't it? Was it, um, it is. I was watching an interview. I caught a bit of it with um, uh, what's his name? Junior Stanislas, who's just retired. Mm -hmm. And it was on about when he was uh, playing under Sean Dyche. And the, the one thing that stuck stuck with him, he said, the minimum I expect is maximum effort. I was yep. like, actually, that makes sense. 
absolutely totally and i don't see that we always get that at the moment so that's no. fair but yeah that's it yeah that's yep. where i sit on and um that, that's it for this unfortunately so oh um, well i mean i've kept you here for three days or whatever it is so i think it's I you know, probably a good say, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure the grass has grown under my feet since we started talking but <laughs> um thank you very much for joining oh, us. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure. Oh, where mine. can people find you i mean i know already but if you want to Thank tell you. anyone who's listening to this sure where they can find you on your socials on your streaming yep so i'm i'm not a massive uh social media guy i i have a twitter come x account at the united city fm so you can find me there uh, i update my schedule there and other bits and pieces but i'm not a massive user of it i find it quite toxic in its way because of my personality type again uh, so you can find me at the united city fm on twitch or x you can also find me at the united city fm on an old youtube channel that doesn't get posted to anymore but is still there if you want to go and check out my journey but now you can find me every weekday afternoon three till five p.m over on twitch.tv forward slash the united city fm and i'm pretty much there every weekday afternoon for a couple of hours having some fun there so those are the primary places you can find me you can also find me weekly on the football manager therapy podcast we usually record on a weekend drop a uh, an episode on a monday for patreons on a tuesday for everybody else on a weekly basis as much as we can and I do some work around the community as well in things like the football manager playoffs uh, and other drafting competitions, etc. So busy, busy, busy. But those are the places you can find me. Come and say hi. It would be great to have you along. And I can say someone who's dropped in on the streams and whatnot, it is. And uh, yeah, I'll like say um, to, to quote your co-host, that's a podcast. Mm -hmm. It is indeed a podcast. I was here. I felt it. It was definitely that. <laughs> Definitely. But no, again, Kev, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Our oh, pleasure has been mine. Thank you for having me on. Uh, time now for the latest instalments of the FM Story 2. Um, so we're kicking off in August 2025. So we're in the 25-26 season. And our first venture in this save anyway, um, into League One. It was a home game against Blackpool, and we got off to a winning start. Won that one, 1-0. One, uh, I'm going to go through three months at a time just to get through this particular season a little bit quicker, because obviously FM24 is very much on the horizon, um, as well as anyone who's got the early access, or beta, if you prefer. prefer. Um, so you're probably playing it already. Anyway, um, after that was the first round of the League Cup, and we had Burton Albion at home, and uh, yeah, the Brewers beat us 3-1. Second league game, away to Wickham, and we won that one 2-1. And then there's a run of 13 games where there was only one win and one draw. The rest were defeats, although two of them were in the Johnson's Paint Trophy. So still not good, though. 33 points on offer, and I got four in total, but we'll go through that anyway. Um, so, yeah, Barnsley at home lost 3-0. Cambridge away, um, these both in the league, lost 4-1. Uh, end of August, we've got a B from the board and a B from the fans. Uh, start of September was a trip to Tramia in the Johnson's Paint Trophy. Uh, lost 7-6 on penalties, so you know we, we took them to spot kicks, that's all right. Uh, then we went to St Andrews in the league, lost 3-1. Uh, home to Rotherham, drew 0-0, so a clean sheet and a point, happy days. Uh, then a run of losses, so at home to Oxford, lost 1-0 away to Salford, lost 1-0. At home to Ipswich, lost 2-1. Uh, 
Away to Burton Albion, lost by a two-goal margin again, 2-0. Away to Reading, lost 2-0. At home to Charlton, lost 2-1. At home to MK Dons, lost 2-1. Away to Bristol Rovers, won 3-0. Nice way to end off the uh, off those last couple of months. Um, so at the end of September, the board and the fans are on a B- minus as uh, our grading. Um, the board at the end of October... Uh, put us at a C. Uh, the fans slightly happier with a C plus. And also at the end of October, uh, I was offered an interview with Wrexham, who was sitting one place behind us in the league, and we were twenty third. So that kind of gives it away where they were. Um, so I politely said no to uh, Mr. Reynolds and continue my career with Harrogate into November, which we'll pick up on in the next episode. Okay, now it's time for the uh, Project Football Podcast FPL Roundup. Uh, we'll start with the leagues. So in the Premier League as such, um, we've got three game weeks to cover. Uh, after game week seven, uh, the top three were Paperboy FC. Uh, it was first. Shemakama uh, Beachup, and that was uh, Paul from Sizek Cinema. He was in second. And Glenn Cadman with Gangsters Allardyce uh, was in third. Uh, game week eight. In fact, no, let's do the bottom three for game week seven first. Uh, so your bottom three were uh, Marcus Whitehead with our time. Uh, it was bottom of the pile. And second from bottom was Paul's Seismic Cinema colleague uh, and broadcasting partner, Colin, with AFC Richmond. Uh, and then just about dropping into the bottom three was Rob Kelly and the Superlatives. Uh, game week eight, um, Paperboy FC with Martin Tranter. Uh, on top again. Uh, second, again, Paul from Seismic Cinema. And third, uh, in fact, it's the same top three as last time, basically. Uh, your bottom three uh, was Stevie Nussbaum dropped to the bottom of the pile with his fantastical Outlook team. Uh, second bottom was Rob Kelly, uh, the superlatives, and Sam Lambeth, who I believe has a new album coming out on the 27th, I think I might have mentioned that in the previous episode, but um, yeah, keep an eye out for that. It'll be worth a listen. Um, go into game week nine, uh, your top three again. Martin Trance is on top with Paperboy FC. Change the record, son. Come on. Um, Luke Williamson uh, with Dear Podens uh, jumped up into second. And kind of joint second slash third is Jake Davey with his team Kloppenheimer. And your bottom three. Uh, it's Colin from Seismic Cinema, Rob Kelly with the superlatives, and old Cavett's, old Havertz Kai Hard. That's a bit of a mouthful. Um, yeah, that's Sam Lambert's team. So there's your bottom three. Uh, into the championship, uh, after game week seven, uh, one of the Backstreet Moyes teams was on top, and that was George Gibbs's team. Uh, Mark Doyle with Marky Marks was in second, and Owen with SQ Army uh, with the San Quentin boys. Uh, that was in third. Uh, your bottom three, uh, bottom of the pile, Project Football FC. No great surprise there. At least you can't say this is rigged. Um, second bottom is DBG's Destroyers, and that's Dan Barker Gray. Or if you listen to the quiz episode, Grimsby Dan. And Jay Samurai with Samurai Warriors, 
was third from bottom. Uh, game week eight, um, top of the pile was, ironically, the other team called Backstreet Boys, and that's Oliver Maiden. Uh, second was the Sesk Pistols, and that's uh, Jamal Mustafa. And third was WKD Blues, and that's Julie Lakin's team. Uh, bottom three again, Project Football FC, bottom of the pile. Uh, Samurai Warriors dropped to 18th, so second bottom. Uh, they've basically done a swap with the DBG Destroyers. And in the final game week of this roundup, so game week nine, uh, your top three are WKD Blues in first. Um, then second is Kaylee Noakes with McGinn and Tonic. And then just to keep one of these teams in the top three, Backstreet Moyes with George Gibbs are in third. Um, your bottom three, again, Project Football FC are bottom of the pile. DBG's Destroyers are still keeping us company there. And recent guest Ryan from the assist with his team, Gopnik. I don't know if that's just some sort of um, acronym, like, I, I don't know, but it's an interesting name all the same. So, uh, yeah, that's the leagues. And the League Cup, we've got a few games through that. So we're back to Group A now. Uh, Paperboy FC took on Claret Cavs, and they were victorious 44 to 36. Uh, WKD Blues played Aki and Saltfish, and they won 52-34, so wins for Paperboy FC and WKD Blues. Uh, Get a Grip Town beat Samurai Warriors 53-50, and uh, rode on and on and on. That's Reedy's team. There's a lot of R's and O's in that. Uh, they were 59-41 to victors over Sack of Potatoes. Unlucky, Glenn. And, yeah, that was Group B. So, Group C, uh, Sam Lambeth with old Havertz Kai Hard beat Gangsters Allardyce. So that's what happens when you take Sam's old team name, uh, 60 to 58. And Luke Williamson beat the Superlatives. So Dear Podence, 87. And Superlatives, 67. Uh, the last of these ones, so Group D, uh, Oliver's Backstreet Moyes beat the SQ Army, 68-46. And Jake Davies Kloppenheimer beat Millwall Chris's Who Are You 82 70. So that's two games gone in that one. Ah, in fact, coming back round to it, sorry. Because um, we've skipped some of the other groups. We're back round to game week seven was the start of group G. Uh, AFC Richmond 23, come down with Bree 49. Uh, Trumagoo 53. Pain in the glass to 70. One of my teams won something. Um, Group H uh, with their first fixtures. Uh, our time, 100. Project Football FC, <laughs> 64. Um, George Gibbs's Backstreet Moyes, 47. And a narrow defeat at the hands of uh, Dan Griffin's Reese's Pieces. They got 48. So we'll cycle back round for the next ones. I think game week 10. Uh, we'll be going back to Group E. Uh, it all makes sense to me, don't worry. So, uh, yeah, that is the PFP-FPL roundup. Right, bit of new music for you now in the guise of the top six. And for a change, there is only six tracks this time. Uh, we'll be having uh, tracks from Annie Hardy, uh, Waverley, Daisies, the Heavy North, 
Handsome Rat and The Vault. Um, I'll put the links for all their social media stuff in the episode description. Um, but yeah, I suppose uh, let's get on with it. So the first one up is Annie Hardy with Lord Coming to My Life. Um, if you're familiar with Slade's way of spelling, then that's how come is spelt, basically. Um, so yeah. So yeah, here's a little bit of Annie Hardy and Lord Coming to My Life. Next up is Waverly with Not Hoping. Number three is Daisies with Eskimo, and that's spelled D A Y Z I E S. track from the heavy north's new album which um i can very much recommend uh, you go and give that a listen that was out on the 20th of october just an fyi um all the tracks that are playing now uh they're already out so you don't got to worry about you know running around and uh, and finding them and whatnot and the track that is going to be played from the heavy north is uh, one of the singles that was out um, before the album was released and it's called where are you now Three down, three to go, and next up, uh, we've got. In fact, 
no, that's four. Maths is hard. Um, Handsome Rat with In and Out of Love. Last but not least, this is The Vaults with Flyboy. Like I said, all the links for the Spotify and the social media for these guys will be in the episode description. Uh, go and give them a follow, a listen, a download, stream. Uh, go and interact with them. You know, you, you, you may well get a response as well. Um, so, yeah, give them a blast. See what you make of it. So, that's the end of this episode. Uh, thank you very much for listening uh, to this episode which is number 54 uh hope you've enjoyed it um if you have um just spread the word uh that'd be great just nice to see the the numbers going up um big thanks to kev for taking the time out uh to record this with us um you can find him on uh, twitch.tv at the united city fm streaming three till five every weekday uh, that'll be on football manager um as you'd have heard through the episode uh, it's part of the Football Manager Therapy podcast, which is on YouTube and all your normal podcast platforms. I'll put the link for that in the description as well. So if, sure if you just search for Football Manager Therapy, um, it will crop up. I uh, just want to thank as well uh, everyone involved in the top six for this episode, as well as Moonman PR, uh, Songbird HQ, Football for Brains 21 Quizbook, and Luke Williamson Art for their continued support and involvement. Um, if you want to get in touch with any of them, uh, Luke Williamson Art can be found on Twitter at LT Williamson Art and LukeWilliamsonArt.com if you want to see the artwork. Uh, Football for Brains 21 is on Twitter at Brains underscore 21. And I'll put the eBay link for the quiz book in the episode description as well. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do. Uh, Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it these days, who blooming knows, uh, is Proj underscore foot. Instagram at Project Football Podcast. Um, on Facebook if you just search for Project Football Podcast and on email if you've got any suggestions for any of the segments which uh, I've not had the full lot this time because again conscious of this being a you know fairly long episode Um, but email is projfoot at gmail.com yeah like I said um, please spread the word for the podcast Um, it's always nice to know that you know people are enjoying it and you know telling other people about it Um, and on that note I believe we've now reached full time 
So all I'm going to say now is goodbye and take care.